Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 194 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is A Missing Link, an interview with Debbie Nichols and Candace Mathis. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Zabatello. Now, Alpha Gal has become the redheaded stepchild of Lyme disease. And quite frankly, we've added to that problem by not really covering this issue enough. Of our 200 podcast episodes, we've only had two prior episodes related to Alpha Gal. But Rich, AlphaGal should not be the redheaded stepchild in the Lyme community because it's such an important piece of the healing journey, especially if you think you may have Lyme disease and another co-infection keeping you sick. There are over two dozen symptoms that overlap with Lyme disease and AlphaGal, and many people are suffering with chronic Lyme, doing everything right, but triggering their AlphaGal and continuing to get worse and worse and worse. AlphaGal could be the missing link for many people in the chronic Lyme community. So Matt, we have been convicted, I'm feeling convicted by the brilliant information that these two very kind women have shared with us on this podcast. There are clearly many people who are not getting better because they've been diagnosed with Lyme disease and they've not been diagnosed with alpha-gal. In fact, some people are even getting sicker as a result of having alpha-gal, but being treated with traditional Lyme treatments such as doxycycline. So Matt, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce Debbie Nichols and Candace Mathis, two alpha gals to the Tick Bootcamp community. Hey, Debbie and Candace, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. We're excited to be here. We're really, really excited to have you guys here too, uh, two gals with alpha gal. And, you know, it's really important for us to focus on alpha gal. Uh, although we've done now almost 200 podcast episodes, uh, we've only actually had two prior um, episodes on alpha gal. So it was really important that we came back to this topic because there are some that think that alpha gal is the stepchild of Lyme disease. And we want to make sure that we're focusing on alpha gal. And there are a lot of different reasons to focus on alpha gal. One of which is we think many, many people with Lyme disease are also suffering from alpha gal, but it's undiagnosed. And they're mistakenly believing that some of the symptoms that they're dealing with or from the Lyme bacteria or from some other co-infection. And in fact, it is alpha-gal. So thank the two, we want to thank the two of you for joining us. So Debbie, first talk to us about where you're from. Oh, sure. Well, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. So um, I lived actually in the city and, um, and loved it there until my family moved us when I was a teenager to Loudoun County, Virginia, which is uh, the opposite of Baltimore, Maryland. So we were surrounded by fields and animals and uh, ticks, apparently. And, I, and until then, I really hadn't heard much about ticks, but it was even in our books when I was in, in high school in Loudoun. And so um, it, was a, it was a big change for me. But it was about that time in high school that I discovered how much I loved science. And so I took all the sciences that I could, and I ended up going into um, chemistry in college. I went to school at Lynchburg College, which is now known as the University of Lynchburg, also in Virginia, um, where I did study chemistry. And I did that for a few years before I ultimately uh, figured out exactly what I wanted to do with my life, which was being a stay-at-home mom. So when my daughter was born, uh, we figured out a way for me to do that. So, um, so now I have two kids, um, and I've been able to stay home with them for, for much of their young lives. Well, and, uh, and that's wonderful that you've been able to do that. And, and I know your children are blessed to be able to have you work with them. So, uh, Candace, talk to us about uh, your background, where you're from, and, uh, and what are you doing with your life? Sure. Um, so I grew up um, as a child right outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, in a small town um, called Meisenheimer. Um, it was actually about an hour outside of the city. So we were in the country as well. 
Um, we moved from there um, and lived in Lillington, North Carolina for my high school um, time. And that was also a very rural area outside of Raleigh. Um, and, you know, I, I like Debbie, really, I really, I've spent a ton of time outside. Um, although I was talking with my husband about this, I do not remember really being talked to about ticks. So it's really interesting. I've kind of been thinking about that a lot. Um, but from there, um, I went to Campbell University, um, met my husband, and I um, majored in public relations. Um, I worked for a short time um, in the arts um, and then became a mother. So I became a stay-at-home mom shortly after the birth of my first child. Um, so I have three children. We now live um, in Christiansburg, Virginia. So we've lived there for the past 14 years. Um, my husband's a chiropractor and um, I've kind of, I've done numerous things throughout um, throughout the years um, from being a stay-at-home mom to being a birth doula um, and, um, you know, developing some food allergies. So I became extremely passionate about cooking and helping others navigate cooking. So um, my passions have kind of developed over the years. Um, and now my kids are all teenagers. So <laughs> Oh, well, stepping congratulations. into Congratulations. You you look pretty good for a gal who survived uh, three children. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so yeah, so now we're stepping into this space of, you know, helping others navigate um, life without the gal. So So we're going to we're going to we're going to get there in a minute or more yeah. than a minute so, but I'm going to come back to Debbie for a minute. So Debbie, you did reference ticks generally and and it sounds like you had some education about ticks when you were in high school in rural Virginia. So talk to us about um, how you were introduced to ticks and what you were taught to do about ticks. Sure, absolutely. So um, that was my first, I mean, I'm sure I probably heard of them when I was growing up in Maryland, but um, but I don't remember it. And um, when I was taking health and PE in, I think it was my junior year of high school, I remember very clearly the book that we were studying because uh, and I'm going to admit something here, but I am terrified of snakes, like terrified of snakes. And there was, I flipped the page and there was this picture of the, you know, the poisonous snakes of Virginia. And I remember like freaking out and throwing the book. And uh, I knew I had to skip that page every time I would flip through the book, but the next page or right around there, it had, you know, those poisonous spiders and it had a page on ticks. And so that's what I remember really starting to learn about ticks. Granted, it was one page and I was 16 and way more interested in the part of the course where I was learning to drive. So, um, but that was my first exposure. I remember at least wearing bug repellent when I was a kid, because even now when I spray it to go down to the barn at our house here, um, it reminds me of being at camp when I was a kid. So I know we were aware of some preventative measures, but also I think of mosquitoes, like that could have just been mosquitoes. So I think that was probably the first um, the first we sort of talked about ticks, but I do know that, you know, everyone in Loudoun talks about how everyone in Loudoun either has Lyme or um, has had Lyme or will have Lyme at some point. Um, we don't live there anymore. We live in Southwest Virginia, close to Candace actually. And now, um, and where ticks are talked about all the time at this point. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's walk that back a little bit, Debbie. So, sure. um, it sounds to me that you received some educational awareness 
learning about snakes, learning about <laughs> poisonous spiders and learning about ticks sort of generally, but you didn't have a whole lot of information about how to avoid ticks and what to do if you were bitten by a tick. You were just sort of generally aware of these sort of predatory animals and, uh, and bugs that could possibly hurt you. Yes, I think so. And I also think, I'm not sure that we even addressed you know, the repercussions of being bit by a tick. We may have just talked about the fact that they were present in our area, you know, deer ticks and dog ticks. And that was probably it on the page, but we didn't spend much time on it as far as I remember. Right. Um, and, well, and I don't remember talking about the proper way to avoid them or the proper way. There may have been a line in there, you know, cover up when you're walking through tall grass, you know, or, um, but, but I honestly don't remember many details about it because we didn't spend much time on it. So Debbie, you, you then went on to college. You majored in chemistry. I did. So let's talk about what additional educational information you received about ticks and Lyme disease other than the one page that was really sort of the scary part of the book that you went past um, about ticks and tick diseases. Anything, anything through your advanced education about ticks or tick diseases? No. No, I don't think I received anything. And I was even out doing, you know, field work because my undergraduate thesis was out in the woods. And so um, I don't remember, I mean, the focus of that wasn't on ticks or tick-borne disease, of course, but I don't remember talking about anything further than, um, than just that little bit that I had learned in high school. Now, Debbie, we also receive awareness or educational information from other sources other than formal education. So let's right. talk about what you learned now that you're living in rural Virginia after moving from, uh, you know, the city of Baltimore. Did you receive any information either from organizations that you were, you belong to, or, you know, like we, we have sort of scouting here, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. I know you folks in more rural places are playing uh, organizations like 4-H um, and it, or did you receive anything, any information, you know, from, from your culture, from your family, from your friends, from your church or anywhere else about uh, ticks and tick diseases? Um, not at that time when we first moved. I think the awareness in my family grew the longer we lived in Loudoun. Um, I, I do remember finding a deer tick or what I believed was a deer tick, what I suspected was a deer tick on myself, probably in my early twenties. And I knew that it needed to be removed. I knew that I needed to remove that, you know, the full, all the mouth parts and, and remove it properly, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about. But um, so, and I, 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 I think I probably gained that information from the growing information in my family. So just talking about it and talking about being more careful and probably the numbers of Lyme going up. Um, so I can draw that from it, but I don't remember having conversations about it, even with my mom and dad. So you recall having a particular experience and that particular experience resulted in you having information about what to do if you were bitten by a tick. But more than that, you have no other recollection of receiving information or training or awareness about ticks and tick diseases. Correct. Okay, so Candace, now we wanna go on this portion of the journey with you. You, uh, sure. you grew up in uh, more rural um, experiences than at least Debbie did during the early part of her life. What were you taught about ticks and tick diseases first in school? I do not remember learning anything about ticks in school. It's very interesting because I lived in a very rural area and maybe, I don't know if it's just something I don't remember and it was taught, um, 
I was outside all the time on my bike, you know, in tall grass. Um, I did not grow up in a family of hunters or, you know, avid outdoorsmen. So I feel like maybe that was a part of it um, where it just wasn't, I don't know. We, it just wasn't a thing. And I was always in trees and I don't ever remember seeing a tick on me as a kid or um, doing tick checks, any of that stuff um, or what was taught in school. Um, but like I said, maybe my focus was just not on that. So I don't really remember. Um, it wasn't until we moved to Virginia where that was where my awareness was really brought, you know, to the forefront, I guess, about ticks, um, because there were more avid outdoorsmen, hikers, um, friends. So I feel like my education and awareness about ticks and tick-borne diseases came from the community. Um, okay, so, so you had no information from either your primary education or your collegiate education that you recall no. about ticks or tick diseases. And you don't recall receiving any information from any cultural source during your childhood. It wasn't until your adult life that you began to right. become aware of, of ticks and tick diseases. That's correct. Now, you, you indicated earlier that your, your husband is a chiropractor and you also have some experience in the medical field where you worked as a doula. Did yes. any of the training that you had received or any of the information you've learned from your husband as a chiropractor put you in a position where you had understanding about ticks or tick diseases? Um, it, I may have, we may have picked up on some of that during, you know, chiropractic school in Iowa. Um, but again, I really think for me, um, we, it wasn't until we knew people, we knew people that had, you know, contracted Lyme or other tick-borne diseases that it became something that we thought about more, um, especially with our own growing family, um, so, yeah, I do think it was there, especially in chiropractic school from the doula side. I mean, clearly that really <laughs> was never talked about with birth, um, but yeah, it, it was definitely more of a communal awareness, you know, aspect. So Debbie, you were aware of ticks generally and tick diseases generally, first from an educational experience, which quite frankly is unique. We rarely hear anyone that we've interviewed on this podcast having any information about ticks or tick diseases from, uh, from their educational experience. So although you only had one page, it's one page more than almost everyone else we've ever interviewed. Um, but now things, of course, have changed for you now that you're a mom, right? You're a mom. And, you know, all of these things that were scary when you were a kid, you were able to throw that book away. But now that you're a mom, you can't throw the book away, right? You right. now have to focus on protecting your children. And you have to make sure that any of these threats, whether they be snakes, poisonous snakes, which, of course, <laughs> as a New Yorker, we think that's kind of funny because we don't have any of them here that we're aware of, or, or, or poisonous spiders or any of these other things that you folks living in rural communities have to deal with, right? You now have a different different reason to be aware of these threats so that you can protect your children from them. So talk to us about how that changed you in how you were dealing with these various environmental threats, including ticks. Absolutely. So I think I was probably hearing more and more about Lyme disease, you know, as the years go on, I think a lot of us did, right? As more people got it. So by the time my daughter was born, um, my oldest, and, and she, that was 17 years ago, she, um, 
you know, by the time she was going out and playing outside, playing soccer or whatever other activity, we were an, we are an outdoor family still. Um, uh, uh, tick checks became a critical part of our daily life because I was terrified that something might happen to this little human that we had created. And so, um, so, and living in, you know, Western Louda, and that was, that was talked about at that point. So, um, so we did tick checks, we did, you know, uh, repellent every time we went out or not every time probably because I don't know that we even knew anybody at that point who had Lyme disease. And so, um, I guess the fear of it hadn't been instilled in the way that it is now that we know people who have it and the fear of alpha gal um, living with it. So, um, so we probably weren't as vigilant with the repellent as we otherwise would have been. But if we were going in tall grass, we would, we would cover up if we were hiking or something, we would, we would wear tall socks and, you know, call that protective. And, um, but we did do the tick checks and then we, we moved to a slightly larger property when our kids were in elementary school and where we did have some woods in the backyard. And so here I've got two kids who, including like a rough and tumble little boy who is rolling around in the grass and the dirt all the time. So we were really vigilant about doing tick checks. Um, so Debbie, oh, talk okay. to us about what a tick check looked like in your family, meaning how were you checking yourself and how were you teaching your children to check themselves? Sure. And um, honestly, I didn't trust my kids to check themselves for a long time. I insisted I, I would let them check the areas that they should check eventually, you know, but um, as they got older, but um but for me, I would make them strip down and I would, I would check all of the places that I would suspect they might be hiding first, you know, behind the knees, in between the toes, in the armpits, under the neck, you know, behind the ears. And then I would do the full scalp check <laughs> and my kids will still tease me because I would put on one of those headlamps with um, the light <laughs> and I would go through their hair like that. So um, it's, it's a... It's a little ridiculous, but I was so afraid of something happened to my kids. And then I'm going to admit something here too, that I probably shouldn't. I was not as good at checking myself as I was at checking them. Well, tell and us so, about that. Well, sure. Well, so we would go out, we would go hiking. I would sort of do a Passover. I would kind of go through my hair and make sure I didn't really feel anything and check the obvious places and do a Passover and call that a day. For them, I was being super vigilant about it. And there were days where I found ticks on them. You know, I would find one in the eyebrow or, you know, and, um, and we would, we would remove them and I would say a prayer that they hadn't contracted anything. Um, but I was definitely better about doing it with them than I was on myself. Um, cause I wasn't as scared for myself as I was about something happening to them, I think. Okay, so give us a little more detail on how you would do your tick checks with your children. Uh, oh. In addition to the headlamp, I mean, so you had the headlamp on so that you, could, <laughs> you could have uh, you could have some some light on them. And and now give us some detail about specifically how you would do it. I mean, oh, are, sure. are you looking? Are you touching? Is it a combination of the two? How are you doing it? It's a combination of the two. I am running my hands over them. I'm looking over their skin with my headlamp. And um, 
and I'm pulling, like I would pull their ears out and look and just try to make sure all the skin was flat and, um, you know, in their armpits, kind of pull it out and the toes kind of pulling them apart and running my fingers through there. And, you know, I was more scared of deer ticks than anything. And so I'm looking for these little tiny flecks, anything that might look, and my son still has freckles where I'll be like, what's that? And he goes, you've checked it about 4 million times. It's not a tick, you know, like I should know, but it, it's that initial, like, he's got a tick. But so it was a lot. It was feeling, it was looking, it was manipulating. And, and we went from head to toe. We went from head to toe. And, and how did you secure the cooperation of your children to do these tick checks, especially your son? Uh, if you want the honest truth, uh, I didn't give him an option. Okay. You know, you know, uh, it sounds like, uh, sounds like you're a tough mom uh, who would get out the headlamp, <laughs> not only to check ticks, but of course, to make sure that they're not misbehaving in any way. And I certainly yeah. wouldn't want to be one of your children's boyfriends or girlfriends. If you came out with that headlamp and started cross-examining <laughs> them before, uh, before they went out on a date, but that's a conversation for another podcast, not ours. So sure. Candace, let's, let's focus on, uh, on you and, um, and, uh, the types of tick checks, if any, you were doing with uh, first for yourself and then on your children. Sure. So I have to say I was not as vigilant as Debbie. <laughs> I mean, I like we did tick checks with our kids. Um, clearly, when we moved to Southwest Virginia, you know, we became hikers and out, you know, doing more things outdoors than we had ever done growing up. I mean, especially for me. Um so we were around that community and learned from, from our friends, you know, how we needed to be um, more proactive in doing tick checks um, with our kids. Um, but I did not have a headlamp, but we, my <laughs> husband and I, <laughs> my husband and I would kind of divide and conquer with our kids. So we have two boys and a girl. And, um, you know, at that time, our boys were like two and four. So they were much more active. You know, our, our daughter was a baby, so she was not, you know, really out there. Although we would check her too, because it, you know, clearly think, you know, the ticks, ticks can get on, on anyone at any age. Um, but we would strip them down. Um, again, we just didn't give them an option and they thought it was hilarious because <laughs> they thought we were like playing monkey, you know, like, <laughs> So, you know, we're looking in their hair, same thing. Um, we just had good lighting and um, we did the best that we could at, you know, identifying if there was a tick there or not. And, you know, we've learned over yeah. the years. So Candace, talk to us about what prompted you to do that, because it sounds to me that you really weren't raised to do that, meaning it wasn't sure. part of the culture that you grew, grew up in. Certainly wasn't right. something that you were educated to do either through your your uh, secondary education or through your college education. So what prompted you to begin to do tick checks? Um, I think my husband, you know, he grew up in a hunting family in Southeastern North Carolina. So he was in the woods all the time. So that was something from, from his family, he was educated on that. And he was, you know, used to doing those checks on himself um, from being in the woods. So I really think it was from him. He was the one that, you know, really, Told us to do that for our kids. And like Debbie said, you know, you, you want to protect your children. So you're, you do become a little more um, vigilant and you bring that in as just a part of what, what you do after you've been outside for any length of time. So it just became a habit in our family. Um, but again, I feel like I, we were checking our kids a little more religiously than we were checking ourselves. 
that's what I was just going to get to. Um, so why, why were you so vigilant about checking your children and not so vigilant about either checking yourself or you and your husband checking each other, Candace? I think we would check our, like we would do a check, but it would be a lot faster. It just wasn't, um, I don't know. I think that's just part of being a parent. You kind of just, you know, you want, you want to protect your kids first and foremost. And so then sometimes it slips through the cracks where you're just not checking yourself quite as good as you should. So Candace, let's talk about when you first started to show the symptoms of what you now know to be your tick disease, because, you know, if, 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 if I could sort of give this visual that's in my head, I see these sort of two trains on the track are about to run into one another because we have someone who is really smart and really educated, meaning you. Um, you have a husband who is from a hunting family who has a medical background. The right. two of you are aware of ticks and what ticks and tick diseases could mean. You're doing a really aggressive job about making sure you're protecting the little people that God has given to you to care for, but you're not as being as vigilant about taking care of yourself. So talk to us about how, um, how your tick diseases began to present, um, in your, in your early life. So I'm going to, I'm going to back up maybe one little step further, um, just to, to preface all of this. So I did find a tick on me when I was pregnant with our daughter. Um, so that was in 2000 and nine okay seven wait seven <laughs> um 2007 so um and it was a tiny tiny poppy seed tick we had been in floyd virginia i now know that that is kind of a hub for a ton of tick-borne diseases a lot of people have contracted lyme in floyd um and it was an oversight i was eight months pregnant i could barely see my feet it was on my toe um and it was at that moment, I think that it was pivotal for me because I, um, I had started to hear more about Lyme disease and it was, you know, um, just this, this time that I knew like, oh gosh, what is, you know, what is this going to do to me? Um, but back then the medical community was not prophylactically treating Lyme. So I didn't have a bullseye, that whole thing. So fast forward into when my symptoms began, um, they started the month after I was bitten by that tick. Um, I started with GI symptoms. I just felt not well. Um, and I went on the quest for trying to figure out, you know, why was I reacting after I ate certain foods? And, um, it took about six months to get a diagnosis that I had a wheat allergy. Um, so, that, you know, once I started to eliminate wheat, things really improved for me. Um, but I would have these ebb and flow, you know, of these horrific GI episodes and I could not figure out what was prompting them. You know, I was, I had eliminated gluten and wheat from everything. Um, and I was super, super strict. Um, I love to cook. So I, you know, reinvented myself in that way. And, um, so it was not until three years ago, 2018, when everything kind of imploded. And like you were saying that <laughs> the trains kind of collided. Um, so, so Candace, let me ask you to pause there before we get sure. to, the, to, the, to the Alpha Gal train and the Candace train running at one another on the same track. Let's okay. talk about 
let's talk about how you found that tick. You said, so you did find the tick that uh, had bitten you on your foot. Yes. So it was on my pinky toe on my right, like the outside of my pinky toe. We had been walking. We, we were, my husband and I had stayed at a bed and breakfast in Floyd and we had walked through um, the grass and it was, I mean, it was tiny. It was a speck maybe it was probably even smaller than a poppy seed. It was so tiny. Um, I thought it was a speck of dirt and I thought I just can't scrub it off because I'm so pregnant. (laughs) It was hard for me to have bend over totally. And I just ignored it. I should have asked my husband to look at it closer. And I don't know, pregnancy brain. I have no clue why I didn't like even think at that time, Oh, this could be a tick. So um, how long was it on your foot between the time you first discovered it and the time you ultimately removed that very small, smaller than poppy seed tick from your, from your toe? It was three days. So how did you ultimately, how did you ultimately come to recognize that it was a tick and then you removed it after it being on your foot three days after you initially discovered it? So I ended up trying, you know, sitting down and like really scrubbing my foot And it wasn't coming off. So I had my husband help me, you know, I called him in and I'm like, what is on my toe? And so he had to remove it with tweezers and, um, you know, it had not become engorged or anything like that. Um, and we removed the whole thing. Um, so, yeah. So now you are, uh, you're married to a medical professional, right? Medical professional removes the tick. Um, what did you and the medical professional do to get treatment for you after you discovered this tick that was on your foot for three days? Sure. So I didn't know anything about saving a tick and sending the tick in. I wish I would have. Um, that wasn't something that Lee and I really had heard about at that time. So we, I ended up going to a doctor and letting them look at my foot, um, without the tick, we threw the, you know, threw the tick away. Um, and because I did not have a bullseye rash there, you know, there was nothing done about it. And, um, even after my symptoms developed, I don't know there that the two were not, the two were not linked at all. Okay. So let's pause that for a second, Candace, because Matt is going to talk with you about that, that part of your journey in a minute, but I want to go back okay. to Debbie now. So Debbie, talk to us about your Lyme disease slash alpha gal uh, symptoms, because I know you have a journey where there was sort of some crossover between whether you had one or the other, but when did your symptoms begin to develop? Sure. Well, as far as the, the GI symptoms, which I think have been the most prominent symptoms for me, those started around 2010, 2011, somewhere in there. I, rec- I mean, my stomach was upset all the time, but I recognized the connection with red meat. But okay, I so pause that not... for a second. Sure. Let's pause that for a second. So you, so before 2011, you were having GI issues. Talk to us about those GI issues that you had prior to 2011 and how they presented. Sure. Well, I knew that if I had a rich meal or, I mean, which lots of people have the same thing, I would have an upset stomach later that night. Um, and it, it would get to the point where I'd be like, okay, I'll sleep. I'll feel better tomorrow. I know I'll wake up and I'll feel better tomorrow. And that would happen. And then it would cluster a little bit and they would be stretched out. And I would, I started to think I had maybe IBS. My sister has ulcerative colitis. And so I thought maybe I was going down that 
route and um and I just thought it was something that I was going to have to live with for a long time. I just, I didn't think it was anything that was necessarily even treatable. I just thought my stomach hurt because I had this, I had a bad stomach. I had a bad GI tract that, you know, I, in college, I used to joke because I could go to Taco Bell and I could eat like everything on the menu and not have any issues. And I was like the only one in my sorority who could do that. But then it all changed in my thirties. All of a sudden I couldn't, and I thought it was me getting older. I thought, you know, I'd had two children. I, you know, my metabolism was slowing down. I had excuses for every reason that I felt bad. So I had GI issues for a long time and didn't link them to anything in particular. Okay. So, so you had, you had this sort of very healthy GI system all through college where you could be the party sorority gal going to Taco Bell after a late night of partying and it didn't bother you, but then it starts to bother you. So let's talk about how it began to bother you and how it presented, meaning was this something that grew over time? Meaning did you're out, did you now have what you now know to be an allergy that kept getting worse and worse and worse and it progressed over time. And if that's the case, what did it look like at the very beginning? Sure. At the very beginning, it just looked like stomach pain and bloating and diarrhea and gas and like just extreme discomfort. So it, the discomfort was the worst part. Right. But then I also had two small kids and I was like, I'm not sleeping, you know, um, I don't have time for this. I would take Tums, you know, just anything. I, I, I still drink all this mint tea, you know, like I, I really didn't identify it as, as anything out of the ordinary. I just thought it was my body changing, but it was, um, I mean, it, I guess it started pretty regularly. Hang on. I can probably come up probably the mid two thousands, like at like 2000, six, 2007, I started to recognize that this was a pattern. Oh, so now um, was this pre- pattern progressing meaning was it getting more frequent was it worse was it what was how was the pattern changing up till 2011 i well it would ebb and flow honestly i don't i don't remember it getting gradually worse um as i observed later but at that period i was just noticing an ebb and flow and i would notice it you know i would say i said rich food particularly but i'm thinking like cheese and steak and all these things that I was just calling triggers, you know, because my sister with ulcerative colitis had triggers. Um, So I think it was more of an ebb and flow at that point than it was building. Okay. So let's, let's talk about what medical treatment, if any, you sought between when these symptoms first started after you finished your um, party life in college, and then ultimately started to get sicker and sicker and sicker. Were you, were you treating with any physicians or were you just sort of dealing with it and explaining it as either aging, part of the aging process, part of maybe bad genes that you had inherited uh, similar to your sister's challenges or what were you doing? It was the latter exclusively. I was not seeking at that point um, I was not seeking much, uh, much medical attention at all. Um, I really attributed this to all those things you just list- listed, getting older, bad genes, um, having to watch my diet to eat healthier, those things. I, I, I had two small kids. I did not have the time to seek out medical attention for something that I felt was probably not treatable at that time or not treatable by a medical professional, something I should be able to treat at home with 
over-the-counter medication and, you know, um, tea and things like that, things that should just make me feel better. Um, now, Debbie, do you remember coming in contact with a tick just before your symptoms began to develop? Not just before. So I have memories of two ticks. One was the one was the one that I suspected was a deer tick when I was in my very early twenties. Um, and I did remove that one. And I, I think I mentioned earlier, I, I knew that I had to remove it completely. Um, I even remember I, because this is what my dad did, did at the time I took it and I taped it on a piece of paper. Cause I was thinking if I get a bullseye rash, then I've got the tick, you know, maybe somebody can identify it. I don't, I don't know. It's what my dad did. So I did, I taped it on a piece of paper. I never got a bullseye rash or anything like that, but that would have been years before any of my symptoms started. And then there was a second tick that I, and I don't even remember the details of it very well. It was a big tick. Um, and I found it and I pulled it off and I, I, I don't believe it was engorged or anything. Um, but I wasn't fearful of it because it wasn't a tiny tick. Uh, and that's what I was scared of at the time. I was scared of getting Lyme. Um, so no, nothing right before my symptoms, nothing within that, you know, few years right before my symptoms. So Candace, talk to us more about your journey with the medical profession, because you mentioned that you were misdiagnosed with a wheat allergy and you weren't getting better by eliminating wheat from your diet. So did you follow up with other doctors to see what was going on? So, yeah, so, um, you know, I... I did in a way, um, when I eliminated wheat, like I did get better initially. Um, and it wasn't until like year, a few years later, I feel like things started to ebb and flow again. So it was, it was really interesting. Um, I started questioning like what else could be going on. So I sought out, um, some lab work and stuff from a functional medical practitioner, um, to see, you know, was I missing anything? Was there, you know, a root cause? Could it be Lyme? Could it be, you know, I don't know any other number of things, viruses, or, um, if I had some genetic stuff going on. Um, so it wasn't until probably 2008, 16 when I started to kind of question what more could be going on um, just because there would be these spikes and I could not, I couldn't put my finger on it. I could, I, I couldn't link it back to food, but at that time I didn't know, like, should I be questioning the red meat I'm eating? I was a huge paleo diet person. So I was eating a lot of beef, a lot of, you know, pork, a lot of bacon, <laughs> um, and I, I couldn't, I did not see the connection at all. Um, so it wasn't until then. And I started more on the functional, the functional medicine side, because I knew that they were taking it kind of a step further and looking a little deeper. So Candace, did you ever treat with an allergist or was it a functional medicine doctor that diagnosed you with that wheat allergy? So I was diagnosed um, by an allergist with my wheat allergy. So I had the, the skin prick test done um, and came up with wheat, sesame and barley. Um, so I kind of, you know, at that point I felt like, ah, I have my answer. This is it. I'm not going to have any stomach issues ever again. And went on my merry way for a while. And alpha gal was never brought up as being part of the picture or a possibility early um, on in your journey. 
Not at all. I mean, that was the thing when I found the tick, like I said, I feel like back in 2007, it was, things weren't done prophylactically. So because there wasn't a bullseye that it was a closed case that, you know, it was never brought up again about the connection and there, it was never even talked about. So, um, and in my mind, I didn't know to, to ask further. I had never even heard about alpha gal at that point. It was only Lyme disease. And what about you, Debbie? So you had two tick bites. Now you'd started developing these allergies. Did any doctor that you were seeing, even your primary care physician in passing and discussing your new allergies that were out of the blue ever suggest it could be an alpha gal allergy from a tick bite? No, no, I, nobody suggested anything at that point. And I'd never heard of it back then because somewhere around, well, it wasn't, it was about 2015, we went to a wedding and that's when I made the direct connection between red meat and my stomach problems. But I had started developing about that time additional symptoms like the the joint pain is the thing that that jumps out at me and that's when I started seeing a doctor because I thought I had Lyme so um so I couldn't lay on my side and read my kids a picture book because my shoulder and my hip would hurt too bad and 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 I would go to the doctor and I would tell them and they would run tests and say you're fine and um so um so I I would say I'm fine so stop. you suspected Lyme disease because of your two thick bites yes, You went to the did. doctor. Did they run a Lyme panel? Three times. I went three different times asking for a Lyme panel and it all came back negative. And, um, and so, I, you know, what would happen is the doctor would, my primary care physician would find this result. You don't have Lyme. Let's figure out what else to do. Let's send you to an, uh, orthopedic. And I would go to the orthopedic and the orthopedic would say, you're fine. And when you hear that twice from two different doctors telling you you're fine and there's nothing wrong with you, even though you feel really bad, it's so discouraging. And you don't want to go to another doctor who's just going to tell you you're fine. And so I would stop and I would go home and I would deal with the ebb and flow of my symptoms. I'd try to avoid the things that made me feel bad. And then like the joint pain would flare and I would go back to the doctor. Could you please run another line test? you're fine. How about we send you to a GI? And so I would go to the GI and the GI would be like, well, you're really fine, but let's do all this. And I went through the endoscopy and the colonoscopy and all the gallbladder tests to the point that I actually had my gallbladder removed because it was, I was having this significant pain under my ribs where my gallbladder is, um, which has been linked now to a symptom of alpha gal. <laughs> and, um, but at least uh, like it was years seeing the GI before I finally did that. And it was GI and multiple GIs telling me you're fine. You're probably developing some sort of IBS or something like that. Watch what you eat. You can go on a prescription if you want, which didn't help. So, um, so that, that was that. But I do want to ask, so you, you did see a lot of other doctors after your primary care physician, and we do understand that alpha-gal is probably the least known tick-borne illness out there, but did any of your doctors, your GI doctors, any of them ever say, you know what, we should run a full tick-borne disease panel, look at Babesia potentially, a different strain of, of Borrelia like Borrelia miyamotai, nothing like that was ever discussed, even though nothing. you had classic, what you felt were Lyme symptoms and had two tick bites. Correct. Nothing. No one ever said anything. So Candace, I want to come back to your symptoms. So in the, you mentioned that your symptoms early on were GI related as well. Were they mm -hmm. the same as Debbie's as far as just gas pain, diarrhea, things like that? Can you talk to us more about how your symptoms started in the early stages? Sure. So in the early stages, I would um, probably a couple hours after eating, I would get 
horrendous stabbing pains in my stomach. Um, and it would, you know, sometimes I would get really bloated, um, but it would take me down to my knees. Like it was really, really, really painful. Um, again, I kind of went down that same path as Debbie, where I ended up having an ultrasound done on my gallbladder and, you know, checking that was the first thing that, you know, the PCP wanted to do. And, um, I would have, um, that pain would be the initial onset. And then the next morning I would have massive diarrhea. Um, I would be, you know, in the bathroom, having to strip my clothes off, feeling like I was going to faint. Um, I'd get really hot and cold. Um, and I would be in the bathroom for an hour or more. And I remember having to call my husband's office just to have someone on the line with me in case I passed out. Like it was really, really intense. Um, and I would kind of, you know, from that point, I would be completely flatlined for the rest of the day. It was just energy wiping. Um, and I would feel terrible for at least 24 hours after that. And it took me time to feel better to do my daily you know, routine and function. Um, and it would, I would have that at least once a week, if not more. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really, a really intense, um, intense time. So even at the early stages, a lot of your symptoms that you're describing are overlapping with symptoms that we see in other people with Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses. So it makes right. me wonder how many people are out there suffering from what they know to be Lyme disease, and they probably and very well likely do have Lyme disease. They're not getting better, but possibly they have alpha-gal as well, and some of their treatments are actually making them feel worse. What do you think about that, Candice? Yeah, I agree with you. And you know, it's um, alpha-gal, unfortunately, is not included in the tick-borne panel. Um, it's a totally separate test. And, um, and, you know, I don't think the medical community has the awareness yet to include that, um, in the testing and screening. Um, so I completely agree with you that there is a lot of overlap, um, in the symptoms, um, with Lyme and alpha-gal. And so for those listening, we're going to get to the specific test that you need when we get to their diagnostic, uh, their diagnostic journey. So just sit tight. We will get to that. And I know Candice and Debbie both know the specifics of the test that needs to be done for alpha-gal. So Candice, talk to us now about how your symptoms developed and got even worse over time, just like Debbie's did as well. Sure. So, um, you know, like I talked about a few minutes ago, I started to question, you know, what's at the root of, you know, these issues. Why am I still occasionally having what I just described to you? I was still, I would still have that from time to time. And sometimes I was woken up in the middle of the night and my blood pressure would tank and I'd feel really lightheaded and have diarrhea. And, um, so I sought out a functional medical doctor and it's interesting because even then alpha-gal was not on that barrage of testing. I mean, I had $5,000 worth of, you know, tests done. I didn't pay that, but it was, it was 20 plus vials of blood and alpha gal was never even thought about at that point, even with the functional medical doctor. Um, so I was put on a barrage of supplements by her, um, to, you know, detox and, you know, get kind of clean everything up to then, I don't know, help leaky gut and all of the stuff. And, um, that was when everything flipped. Um, so the supplements that I had been taking all contained bovine or porcine ingredients were gel, you know, gelatin capsules. Um, and it sent my body into an anaphylactic 
reaction. I didn't know it at the time. I woke up to the room spinning. Um, my heart rate was over 200 and, um, I don't know how I didn't pass out, but, um, that was kind of, that was the onset of the severity of my symptoms. It flipped overnight. I went from being extremely active for eight years, working out three days a week to literally, I couldn't get off the couch. Um, I was extremely fatigued after that episode. Um, I now know it was because my body was almost in complete anaphylactic shock. Um, and I couldn't get out of that spiral. Um, I, at that point had no idea that the supplements that I had taken, I clearly, I stopped them after that. I knew there was something wrong. I just innately knew that that put me where I was. So I stopped taking them, but I was still eating dairy. You know, I was still eating, um, beef and pork. And, um, I had no idea in that moment, how much mammal was in every single thing I was putting in and on my body. Um, so my symptoms became, you know, extremely severe and I just, I was so fatigued. I, I just remember the fatigue was the biggest thing. My husband had to stay home with me for two weeks. And, um, that was kind of what led me to asking for help from my friends. And that's kind of where Debbie and I's journey kind of connected. Um, we were friends prior, but, um, it was, it was a very, very challenging time. I mean, I didn't know what in the world I was dealing with. So Debbie, let's talk more about the time frame here, because you, it started off with something that you thought would be manageable with over-the-counter drugs and just lifestyle changes up until the point when you started getting joint pain and it hadn't had an interference with your ability to interact with your children and lay and play with them. How long did it take from the onset of your symptoms to the point of where you now have joint pain and it's interfering with your daily life? I don't remember very specifically. It was several years before, you know, where I'd had just the stomach pain before the joint pain started. And then it was, a, there was some build there with, with the joint pain itself after those initial symptoms. Um, and then, so around 2015, which would have been maybe seven or eight years after all this had started, that's when I had a, a moment like Candace had where I experienced that stabbing pain. It, I, like that was such a good way to describe it. I we'd gone to a wedding. I was sitting in the shower after having a steak. It was probably five hours later. And I felt this stabbing pain. And that's when I was like, there is something really wrong with me. And that's what sent me on the journey to start, um, start seeking medical attention for something that was, it was out of my control. It was, it was something I could no longer manage. So De Debbie, you're now eight years in and you're having these symptoms that are becoming somewhat debilitating for you. How is it impacting your relationship with your children and your family? Oh, it in every way. It, I mean, I still, I mean, you hate to say guilt, but I still felt like a terrible mom because I felt like I couldn't do anything with them. And even now, both my kids are, my daughter and my son are both in Boy Scouting. And so um, there at that time, I couldn't do any of the things with them. I couldn't sleep on the, the ground when they would go camping. I didn't feel up to hiking because the fatigue was also starting to set in, in addition to the joint pain and the stomach pain. I didn't want to go out anywhere because I didn't know when I was going to have like an attack of diarrhea, which is just the worst thing to anticipate. Um, and so I started to feel like I was a burden. Like I, I couldn't be the mom that I'd, I'd had my kids pretty young because I'd wanted to 
be young with them. And here I was in my thirties, just, you know, feeling like I was 90. And um, so it impacted it in every way. I had started working part-time um, in the school and that became a problem trying to trying to get up and out every day. I didn't feel like I could go in and volunteer, you know, for the said fear of diarrhea, you know, and, and I would have been a very active volunteer. Um, and that, in, in, and being a volunteer in an elementary or middle school felt, I felt like I had to be active and you were moving around and I knew it was gonna hurt. And, um, and I just didn't have the energy to do it. So it impacted my life in every way. And then you start to think about your marriage and, and the burden and the strain that it puts on your marriage. And God love my husband. He's been supportive through this entire thing but I have been like extra for 15 years, you know? So, um, but, and, and you feel guilty about that. You feel like a burden, even if, even when they're making sure that you, you know, to do everything to make you feel not that way. Um, so it, it impacted every aspect of my life. And even with the family, like I felt like it was all I could talk about my sisters and my parents, like I'd come, but I don't feel good. And, or I'd be with them and I'd be like, I have to go. I don't feel good. And it's, it, it impacts your entire life. So Debbie, talk to us more about your relationship with your husband and this journey. Because we've heard of from a lot of people in the Lyme community that they've lost marriages and long-term relationships because of their, their health decline. And the ones that have been able to keep their relationships are the ones that have told us that they just had to be horribly and brutally honest with their spouses and their loved ones and keep that line of communication open to keep their relationship going and strong. So how did you overcome that, that hurdle and, and maintain a good relationship with your husband while you were getting sicker and sicker and sicker? Well, uh, first I think I'm maybe married to like the most incredible guy in the world. <laughs> He's so sensitive and he, his sister was actually born with cerebral palsy. And so he spent you know, tw the 23 years of her life really caring for her. And so I saw him become that person for me in a lot of ways, um, which is just such a beautiful thing because he loved me in spite of how difficult I was making <laughs> his life. But I think you hit it on the head, like the honesty and the communication. And, you know, you try to protect some things in your marriage. Like I, I still tried to be that, you know, I wanted to be pretty and, you know, you know, clean and all these things. But I had to be like, you know what? You've got to wait here because I have to go up to the bathroom and I'm going to be there for an hour and you can't come in because it's going to be the worst thing you've ever <laughs> seen. And so keeping it open and keeping it real and communicating. And um, I, I just feel really, I, I do feel really lucky that it's him because I could see how it could put enough strain on a relationship that, um, that it, might not, it might not succeed. So Candace, how did your developing symptoms impact your relationship with your family and friends and loved ones? Yeah, I mean, I feel very similar to, to Debbie. I mean, it, um, my kids were really little when the GI stuff started and um, it was hard. It was really hard when you have a two-year-old, a four-year-old and a newborn and you feel like you can't be the mom that you need to be and play with them, you know, like you should be able to. And I was really young too. I was 22 when I had my first. So, um, you know, it was really hard. It was a really hard thing to, to, you know, wrap your head around and, and it, I don't know, like accept, I guess. And, um, 
you know, I feel the same, like my husband is, is amazing. I mean, he, I, I think being a, a healthcare provider himself, I've, we have an extremely honest, open relationship. Sometimes I think I'm too open. <laughs> I communicate too much. I don't know. Um, but it's, he never once faltered, um, with caring for me in those times. And he was my biggest rock. I mean, I don't know how I would have gotten through any of this without him. So, um, we just, I feel like we've grown even closer through this because it's, we've had some pretty scary moments, um, you know, especially in the past four years. Um, but my husband would step in and help with the kids and just, you know, help make dinner and, um, do all of those things. So I, I just, I really feel like we, especially as women, we have to, we have to speak our truth and we have to lean on our partner in that time and tell them what we need. And if it's, you know, that they need to come home from working and make dinner, then I hope, I, I hope and pray everyone would have the support that they need from their spouse in that time. Um, and we were, I'm just grateful that I did. And that I was able to be able to speak that to him. So Debbie, after your stake incident, and at that point you already had your joint pain, this is later on in your, in your journey, and you knew you had this red meat allergy, none of your doctors still were thinking alpha-gal, just to be clear. Nobody, nobody. And I'd even drawn the connection for them to red meat. And they said, oh, you might have an allergy to red meat. That's a thing. That's a separate thing. And now you, you said that because of this, you decided to pursue medical treatment and started seeing some doctors to figure out what was going on. So talk us through the doctors you saw and, and what you learned from those doctors. Sure, sure. So um, the first thing, I guess, was when the Lyme panels came back that I didn't have Lyme. Um, I think I, that was for the joint pain, I think is why I, I sought that out initially. And so they sent me to um, an orthopedic to see what was going on. And, um, and cause I'd had this, I'd had this terrible shoulder pain that, um, I mean, I would be driving and go to look over my shoulder and it would hurt so bad that I felt like I couldn't even turn my head. And I started to feel like I, I was a risk on the road. Like I couldn't drive my kids because I was, I couldn't drive safely. So they sent me to an orthopedic doctor um, which was probably about the worst medical experience of my entire life because he didn't want to hear a thing that I had to say. Um, and I rely on the medical professionals. I'm not one. So I want to know what they have to say. I just want to understand it. And he didn't want to, he didn't want to hear my story. He didn't he didn't want to hear what I had expected. He didn't want to hear what I had tried. He just looked at me and then sent me for an x-ray and said, you're fine. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I could give you a cortisone shot. And so he gave me a cortisone shot and sent me on my way. Like I remember I didn't even stop to check out that day. I was so upset leaving the doctor. And I was like, that's it. I'm, I'm not going back. I'm, nobody's going to, nobody's going to help me. Nobody can help me. Nobody can help me figure out how to feel better. Um, you know, and I was taking a lot of Advil and Aleve at that time. And so I thought maybe that was making my stomach problems worse. Maybe it was irritating my stomach lining. And maybe this was all linked together. And so I was trying not to take anything to make it feel better. And so I would take a break and then I would feel so bad that I would go back to the PCP. And then she started sending me to GI doctors um, who did the typical tests, the, the endoscopy and the colonoscopy and um, actually had two endoscopies done. And then 
then all the gallbladder tests and um, they still didn't find anything. They said, you know, IBS maybe. Um, so I stopped again because I felt like nobody was helping me again. I had all these various symptoms and they seemed linked in some way, but not like you have so many things wrong with you that you're just not going to figure out any of them. And so I would give up again and then go back when they got bad enough. I mean, I would go to a different GI and I actually went to a neurologist at one point and uh, had all the MRIs done and trying to figure out what in the world is causing all this pain. At that point, the brain fog had set in, you know, I couldn't, I felt like I had early on, couldn't formulate a thought or a sentence. Um, and it was the same thing. No one could identify the root of the cause for this. And so it was that, that ebb and flow where I would feel really bad. I would see two people and then I would quit because no one could help me. And then I would feel really bad. I would see maybe two people and then I would quit because no one would help me. And then when I moved to Blacksburg in, we moved here in 2017, I started seeing a GI here. Cause I was like, oh, I'm going to start fresh. They don't have my, my novel of medical records that they did up in Loudoun. So I saw a GI on my own. I didn't even need to see um, a PCP, but um, he said, well, it really sounds like it's your gallbladder you know, you had all these tests, let's just go ahead and take it out. And um, so I was like, great, maybe this will stop my stomach pain. So I had the gallbladder taken out. And I remember going back, like for a one month follow up, I was like, my stomach is still so bad. And not only that, but I was still having pain, like up under my rib where my gallbladder, well, you'll have that phantom pain there for a while. And, um, and so, so I gave up again. <laughs> You know, I, I definitely cut back on red meat. Like I, 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 I'd stopped eating steak because that seemed to be the worst. Um, but occasionally I would have a hamburger and I would feel bad, but you know, I was like, I have an allergy to red meat maybe, but it's not going to kill me. <laughs> so many of the things you're talking about have similarities with Lyme symptoms. So when you talked about turning your head and, and not being able to move your head and it was so painful with your shoulder, we've heard that countless times on the podcast with people as, as a Lyme symptom. Brain fog is a huge symptom of Lyme disease. So again, I just see so many, so many overlapping symptoms. So I just encourage everybody listening that if you're not getting better and you're treating and you're having all these sensitivities and overlapping symptoms that you do get tested for alpha gal to see if there's something else going on beyond just, just Lyme disease there. So, so Debbie, talk to us about how alpha gal finally got put on the, on the table for you as an option and how it got brought to your attention. Sure. I have to bring Candace into this part a little bit because it was kind of a group effort. But um, <laughs> what happened was when Candace was going through that really difficult phase, um, I mean, she was so sick. We were taking turns going over and staying with her um, when, and I'm sure she'll talk about her eventual diagnosis, but when when she was talking about her diagnosis with alpha-gal, because she was actually diagnosed first, we had already sort of noticed a lot of these overlapping symptoms. And so I would lie in bed at night and I was like Googling them. And I was looking at this alpha gal thing that she had found. And I was like, yeah, this just sounds like it could be on the money. But my gut was telling me that you've proposed all these things to doctors in the past. You've proposed that you have Lyme disease. You've proposed, you know, and you've always been wrong. So why would this why would this be right? And so finally I called, 
thank goodness for good insurance, right? Because I could call, I just called an allergist and immunologist here. And I, I told her I was feeling sick. Could she check me for a red meat allergy and all this other stuff? And so they did the panel of tests and I did come up as negative in the skin test for beef <clears throat> and a slew of other things, but I cut beef. So I cut beef out completely. And then um, I was still feeling sick. <laughs> so I was like, I, I called them. I was like, I need to be tested for this alpha gal syndrome. No one had, even my allergist hadn't mentioned it to me at that point. And so I, I, I insisted that I be tested for it and it came back positive. The blood work came back positive for, I turned out positive for alpha gal syndrome, but then also for beef and pork and lamb, you know, and all the mammal things. And, um, uh, truthfully, when the nurse called me with my results, she said, okay, uh, she's like, you, you're positive. And my gut reaction was like, yes, I can cut it all out. I'm going to finally start to feel better. She goes, just stop eating beef. Like well, that was, the, so, so you thought, right. But that I just, was it. Yeah. I was like, I can, I, you know, I can, I can stop completely. And, and I figured I'd cut out pork since that had come up as, um, as uh, an allergy as well. And so I, I stopped eating beef and pork and I continued to feel pretty bad. <laughs> so, so two follow-up questions there quickly though. So sure. num number one, you'd mentioned that you did the skin allergy panel and your red meat allergy came back negative. No, the skin allergy came up positive. If I oh, said. I'm sorry. Okay. I misunderstood. Yeah, so it came back I positive. Yeah. And then, um, and then you followed up and said, I want an alpha gal test, which they ran that came back positive. So, but what even put alpha gal on your mind? How did you find out about alpha gal? Not many people even know what it is. Candace. It was Candace. She found it first. So she was, she was actually diagnosed with it before I was. Um, and that was another thing. Like I would hear people's symptoms, you know, they would list these symptoms off, whether they had Lyme or leukemia or in Candace's case, alpha gal. And I would think, oh, I have all those symptoms. Maybe that's what I have. But when she, when, when she was diagnosed with alpha gal, I was thinking these are scary, similar and the whole red meat thing. And that's when, so it was Candace who put it on my radar. And then I just looked into it further. So I just want to point out that alpha-gal can't be that uncommon if two friends living their lives and living parallel journeys both ended up having alpha-gal. It's not that uncommon. I'm sorry. It's just not. Yeah. Especially here in New York, I we agree. know it's far more common than, than people think. Yeah. But Candace, talk to us about how you got to your diagnosis of alpha-gal before Debbie. So when you know I had that terrible episode that night, um, it started the journey of me questioning, like what in the world is going on now? <laughs> um, so I went from the functional medical doctor. I was seeing completely threw her hands up, had no idea why I was reacting this way. Oh, it's a Herxheimer. Oh, you'll get better. Just come do this foot soak. No. So she <laughs> sent me to, she sent me to back to my PCP, you know, which I was trying to avoid the spiral of seeing all of these various doctors and specialists. I, that's why I went to a functional medical doctor to start with, but I went back to my PCP. My PCP had no idea what was going on. You know, she said, I, I think you're in a mast cell storm that I, I, we don't know what to do with you right now. So I insisted that she send me to an immunologist. Um, again, it was through my own research through, you know, diving in on the internet and trying to put the pieces together with my symptoms um, and alpha gal did come up and it, 
and it made me think more, you know, and I had heard people over the years, I, I had heard of alpha gal and, and thought it was the craziest thing. Like, how can you be allergic to mammal? My gosh, that must be terrible. Um, so it was like on my radar, my, my therapist actually had alpha gal. So it was one of those things that kind of divinely, I feel like it was being put in front of me and, um, I knew I had to see a specialist. So, um, by the grace of God, I suffered for two months, um, going back and forth from my PCP to cardiologist, um, had the appointment at UVA, but had to wait, you know, and I remember calling them. I was still a month out for my appointment at that point. And I remember calling them after having a terrible, terrible reaction in the middle of the night, which is something that happens with alpha gal. A lot of people, their symptoms are happening in the middle of the night or early morning, you know, because it's three to six hour delayed response after you eat your last meal. And, um, so I called UVA and I, was crying. And I said, do I need to, do I need to call every single day and get, you know, and see about your cancellations? I was already on their wait list. And I said, cause I'll call every single morning to get there. And this was a Thursday and she called me back in an hour. And she said, we just had a cancellation for Monday. Can you be here Monday? And I was like, thank you, Lord. Cause I knew I was like, I'm going to die. Like, I don't know how I'm going to survive one more month of this, of, of having these now that I know, I didn't know at the time, but they were anaphylactic reactions. My throat wasn't closing. Um, anaphylaxis was something I only thought affected your throat and your airways. And that is not true. So my blood pressure was tanking. I was having, um, like racing heart rate and, um, feeling faint, um, feeling impending doom. You know, there are, there are, are so many other symptoms of anaphylaxis than just getting hives in your throat closing. So, um, so that's kind of what led, you know, to me seeing Dr. The group that Dr. Platts Mills has at UVA, um, he's actually the immunologist that discovered alpha gal. So they knew immediately I walked in, um, that Monday and they said, we know what's wrong with you. And I just busted out crying, you know, cause for the first time in almost three months, someone knew what to do with me. <laughs> so Candace, your, your doctor is the one who discovered alpha gal. So Dr. Platts Mills at UVA, he was the one that discovered alpha gal. Yes. Okay, and a few, and a few follow-up questions before you continue on with that. So you mentioned that your doctors previously before this were telling you that you were having a mast cell storm and that you're having a lot of mast cell issues. Yeah. How did they know you were having a mast cell storm? And what did that feel like for you? So, um, my primary care doctor actually studied under Dr. Platts Mills. So it's, I kind of, I was, I've been very, very fortunate to have knowledgeable people through this. I mean, I feel like some of them weren't, but when it came down to leading me to the actual alpha gal diagnosis, I feel like the people in my path have been, have been kind of on the forefront of all of this. Um, and I do think, you know, I see Dr. Scott Commons now too at UNC, and there is a big mast cell component from what I'm learning from him with tick-borne diseases. So I do think, I think this is such a complex thing. I don't think it's a one, one size fits all for everyone. And I don't think that it's one thing or the other. It can be a combination. Like you were saying, I think a lot of our Lyme community probably has alpha gal and just doesn't, doesn't know, or they've not known to be tested for it. And 
the mast cell component is a piece of this as well. Um, she didn't know what to do with that. So that's why she sent me out. Um, and again, it's, it's not, it's a big trial and error with all of it medication wise. So, um, I don't know if I'm answering that completely. You are, but Candace, I'm just curious, how did your doctor know that you had mast cell issues? Was it based on your symptomology and yeah, you explained to yeah. what was going on? Did you write yes. a test to determine that? that? So, I mean, there are tests, but again, I think they're like Lyme disease where they're not always hundred percent accurate because your mast cells are in your tissue and not in your blood and they're testing blood serum and um, all of that. But it was based off of my symptoms is what she was is what she was going on just from the acuteness of everything and um having this these spikes i think in reactions where things were just so severe and then they would kind of you know drop back down um with your blood pressure changes with um flushing of your cheeks with um gi upset and feeling faint so all of those things kind of go hand in hand um with a mast cell like activation and once again, I just see everything you're saying is a symptom we have heard from people that they attribute to Lyme disease. And again, there's that overlap. And the reason yeah. I'm pushing so much on, on MCAS is because, or the mast cell, we hear from so many people in the Lyme community that they go on to develop mast cell activation syndrome as a, yeah. as a diagnosis that they attribute to their Lyme disease. And I wonder if that maybe is a, a consequence of having alpha-gal and Lyme. And they're, they're, in some cases, they're, they're falsely attributing it to Lyme, but possibly alpha-gal caused the MCAS, not the Lyme. Sure. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it could definitely be an issue. And, you know, I would encourage anyone that is still having symptoms, especially if you're having, you know, issues that you can correlate to after you're eating certain foods. Um, I would, I would encourage you to get, to get an alpha gal test. Um, and it could be, like I said, in your supplements, in your medication, um, gelatin, magnesium, sterate, there are so many animal derived ingredients that, you know, you could be taking this one medication or supplement that's supposed to help your symptoms, but they also contain a mammal derived ingredient that you're then, you know, three hours after taking it, you're feeling terrible. And that was happening to me. I was on this, you know, massive antihistamine regimen before I went to UVA to try to calm down my, my, my allergic reactions. And three hours after taking 180 milligrams of antihistamines, I'm dying again. And it's like, you know, I'm feeling faint and dizzy and brain fog, all of those things that was coming back again. So it was just this twofold of like, it was helping and then it was harming all in the same stroke. So folks, before we go any further, I'd like to learn more about how you two got to know one another and how your journey sort of intersected uh, during this alpha-gal phase of your lives? Sure. So um, Debbie and I met um, a year or so prior to all of, you know, my big flare happening. Um, and we, we met through a mutual friend and we just hit it off. And then, you know, it really was one of those things that I feel like was divine that it was really hard for me. I, I didn't want to ask for help. And I just felt a connection with Debbie and knew that she just was so caring and um, would come to help me. And I literally just had to, to ask for help. And that was, um, that was kind of what set off our, you know, our friendship just kind of 
became a lot closer because she saw me in like my most desperate time, I feel like, of of just being so sick. So Debbie, talk to us about having this experience where you're developing a relationship with someone who has these symptoms that are similar to yours. You sort of had this alpha sister that you didn't know was an alpha sister because neither one of you had been diagnosed yet. Sure, sure. Well, Candice, she said it well. She, you know, we kind of became fast friends. We were both mostly staying home with our kids at the time. And, um, and, and I, you know, my dad used to always say misery loves company. I mean, I'm sure everybody has heard that, but here she was having a lot of these symptoms. The first time we were at a restaurant, it was for this mutual friend's birthday. The first time we met and I watched her order and say, okay, I'm going to have the kale salad, but I need you to do this and this and this and this. I was like, oh yeah, we, we could be friends like, <laughs> because I was thinking I'm going to have to do the same thing in front of these people that I don't even know um, because I know what's going to upset my stomach and I can't, I don't want to do that in front of all these new people. And so we did kind of become fast friends. But then when she was going through this, I felt connected to her because I was like, I know what, what the stomach pain feels like. I was not having anything anaphylactic like she was having at the time. I, I did eventually experience that, but, um, but um, I have to admit though, one of the times I came over to take care of her, I made her bone broth for like from beef bones. And so, you know, we, I mean, just to give you an idea of like how, how disconnected we were from alpha gal, even when she was first experiencing this crisis of symptoms um but yeah and, and then from there I was just you know identifying similarities and it, it you know it, it made it it was so helpful to have a friend who I could say you know it's really weird I'm having this too and she's not going oh you're crazy she's like well are you having this and are you having this and have you looked at this and so um so it's pretty handy to have a have an alpha sister as you call her <laughs> But Candace, talk to us about you finally getting, thank God, to UVA and right off the bat, they're like, you have alpha gal. So I'm sure, it sounds like it was a clinical diagnosis, probably followed up with, with blood work as well. And now is at the yes. time I'm also going to ask you, can you tell us specifically what the test is? Because I know even doctors here in New York, you'll say I want an alpha gal paddle and they're going to go, what's that? And we need to spoon feed yeah. our doctors with what that test is so they can look it up with the right medical code and, and get the test for us. So can you talk a little bit about that, please? Sure. So, um, yeah, it's, it's different. Alpha gal is actually the, you're, you're allergic to the carbohydrate, not the protein. So typically in skin testing, you're, they're testing you for the protein of the allergen. Alpha gal, it's galactose one, alpha galactose three <laughs> might be saying that wrong. Wait, I could three. Alpha, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So there's, there's two, there is an allergy to alpha galactose, I believe I might have to like look this up completely, but it's Fabry's disease. And so that's something completely different than alpha gal. So you have to know like the actual sequence, um, and the alpha gal information.org actually has all of this information of diag like the diagnostic side of it. So I encourage anyone go to alpha alpha gal information.org and you can see exactly the, um, what tests you need to have done. So I always say it wrong. It's, it's one of those things I think I need to like have it tattooed somewhere. <laughs> okay. And that's, and that's kind of the thing. It's like, 
that's why we need more awareness for our medical community, because us as lay people, it's hard to remember these very detailed, you know, you know, if you're in the ER and you're saying, I, I need alpha-gal testing, or I have alpha-gal, you could be, it could be put in wrong. It could be put in as the Fabry's disease, not the actual allergy. Um, so you're saying that if you ask your doctor to run an alpha-gal test, there have been people who have gotten the wrong test and yes. didn't get properly diagnosed. Absolutely. That has just, actually happened. Just to repeat that. Just repeat that website again so people can get the correct information. It's alphagalinformation.org. And on there, it lists the specific codes that are needed for the test, correct? Yes. Under di- if you go under the tab, it will say diagnosis and treatment, and you can see the correct test that you should ask for. Okay. So walk us through your, your diagnosis now. When you finally realize, okay, I have alpha-gal, and I'm with the doctor who discovered alpha-gal, did you think it was going to be a quick fix? What was your, your emotional response to that at that time? I was elated. I was like, yes, I have the diagnosis. And, you know, with, you know, I'm grateful for the journey that I went through with my wheat allergy, because I knew immediately when I left there that it was not that black and white. It was not just eliminate beef and pork. Um, I had to do my due diligence, even being with the top practitioners. Like I had to do my own due diligence and look further into this. What are the hidden ingredients? What are you know, the things that are not going to be up front. And I spent our two hour car ride home from Charlottesville looking for those ingredients. And I was blown away. I mean, I remember the whole car ride. I listened to a podcast with Dr. Commons and I'm like hitting my husband in the arm the whole ride home. And I'm like, oh my God, like it's in all of my antihistamines. Everything that I've been taking contains mammal. Like no wonder I'm so sick. You know, so it was like this relief in a way, um, initially, cause I knew, okay, like I can get to the bottom of this. Um, little did I know that it really, it still, <laughs> it still wasn't that easy. And it's, you know, even four years into this, almost, we still have our days of like, oh my gosh, did I just contaminate myself? Like. You know, there's, <laughs> yeah, I think you still, you don't, um, like the expert, I don't, because there's so much hidden stuff, but you try, right. You try your best. Um, so yeah, I was elated initially. So Debbie, let's come back to your diagnosis. So it sounds like Candace had recommended to you that you go to this doctor at UVA and get tested as well. Is that what happened? Not exactly. I actually went to my local immunologist and allergist and went tested first. And when it came back, um, when it came back positive, I did cut out the beef and pork, but then still wasn't feeling better. So I did make an appointment with the same practice at UVA. Um, And um, when I got there, I learned so much more about everything that Candace was talking about how, and, and Candace is figuring this out as we go too. So I'm learning that you know, I need to be looking at my medications and my, at that point, I didn't seem to be reacting to, you know, my beauty products, but that has since changed. And, 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 and as I figured, you know, the more things that I cut out, the better I feel, I, I continue to feel. Um, so I did go to the, the practice in UVA and that was when I really got a full, a better education on alpha syndrome. And I, they gave me a prescription for EpiPens, which I, I now carry everywhere I go. Um, 
and I have not had to use mine, but they've, I've had EpiPens used on me. Uh, they just don't, weren't mine. But, um, so, so that was sort of the, the, the progression of my diagnosis. So it sounds like just like in the Lyme community, although a doctor can diagnose you with alpha-gal, just like somebody can diagnose you with Lyme, most of the time they're not properly equipped to actually help you manage alpha-gal, just like regular doctors can help you manage Lyme. And therefore you see the specialist, which happened to be Candace's doctor at UVA. Is that accurate? That's accurate. Yeah, that's very accurate. Mm-hmm. So, so Candace, talk to us a little bit about now this, this specialist at UVA. What were... What were your takeaways when you left? You mentioned that you did a ton of research, you were listening to podcasts, but what did UVA tell you specifically you should do and, and medications you should have on hand to be prepared to manage alpha-gal? Sure. So um, clearly I received an EpiPen prescription um, and, you know, it really, they had, they had the most information I think that I've gotten from any doctor on managing this and what needs to be eliminated. I do still think that there is a lot that's left out, um, but it's so in depth. So I can't blame them for, you know, the amount of information that's given or not. Um, but you know, it was, I received like a pamphlet that they had put together of these are, you know, the things that you need to avoid clearly beef, pork, dairy, um, kind of the progression of if you eliminate, because that's the thing with alpha-gal too, is not everyone is allergic to beef, pork, and dairy and, and the byproducts, you know, there's a range with all of this as there is with Lyme. Um, I just happen to be on like the extreme side. So I'm, you know, I have a sensitivity to the byproducts. Um, so they kind of, they kind of broke that down a little bit in that, like of the walkthrough of how to start here and then eliminate this. And then if you're still symptomatic, then keep going. Um, but it was not as in depth as I knew that it needed to be. And so I do think that that's a big takeaway is that we have to be our own advocate. Even if you're seeing the top, the top guy, um, there's still things that they're not going to give you all of the information that you still have to do your own research and you still have to, you know, um, be your own advocate in that way. Which is why the community that you formed on social media and, and to help others is just amazing. And Rich will get to that in a little bit. But I, I do want to follow up with, with the thought that not everybody will react as severely as you did, Candace, right? So right. people are listening and they go, I have chronic Lyme. A lot of what you're saying resonates with me, but I'm not that severe. They can right. still have alpha-gal because everybody has it at a different level. So some people can be very minor. Some people can be correct. very severe, it sounds like, correct? That's exactly right. Yep, that's exactly right. Can I add something to that too? Absolutely. I've heard that someone referred to it, alpha-gal syndrome as the anytime, as an anytime syndrome versus an every time syndrome. And so even if you are somewhere on that spectrum, there might be times you don't react to exposure. And then there might be times that you react to the same thing anaphylactically. So yeah, the word anaphylactically, <laughs> you might have an anaphylactic reaction to that same thing. So I think that's another important takeaway too. Like if you, if you react really bad to beef one day and then don't the next, doesn't mean you don't have alpha gal. It just means you didn't react. And that exactly. makes it so much harder to really, I think, identify and detect that you may have alpha gal. So you're saying I can have a hamburger tonight for dinner and be fine and then have it again on Thursday and have a reaction and end up in the hospital potentially from alpha gal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And I think that, you know, 
that is, it kind of lends to anaphylaxis. You know, I've heard that with people with bee stings, for example, you know, that the first time they get stung by a bee may not be an anaphylactic reaction, but the second time is. So it, there is this waxing and waning that can happen, um, with alpha gal. So, um, so yeah, it does make it a little bit more challenging. So Candace, talk to us about the knowledge gap, because clearly the best doctor in the world didn't have enough information to help you live the life you wanted to live. So you went and did all this research to, to fill that knowledge gap, to get yourself in a place where you can live a more functional life and a, and a more happy life. So what did you learn on your own that has helped you manage alpha gal beyond what you learned from the doctor at UVA? Sure. So, you know, I think one thing maybe we do as people is we expect too much from our medical professionals. I mean, I, I do think, you know, they're, they have a lot on them, right? Like, and I know that for, from my own personal experiences with my husband as a chiropractor, there's so much that they have to do, you know, charting and all of these things. So especially when you have, you know, the researchers are also the ones that are still treating patients. So I think our expectation is the patient. We can't expect our medical professionals to give us all of the information that we need in our, from, from a lifestyle perspective. I think that there's, there's only so much that they can do and we can't expect them to tell us exactly how to live in that way. Um, so that was the thing for us that with, um, as Debbie and I were, were walking this, that we're like, we want to help people. We want to help them navigate this um, and show them, you know, that you can still go from this place. Clearly, like we talked about before, you're going through this grief process. How do you process that? How do you mourn the loss of what your life looked like and what, you know, the, the things that you ate and loved and traditions and all those things, how do you transition that now and reinvent yourself to have a joyful, a joyful life, a safe life, right? So, you may not be able to eat butter, but here's this really amazing substitute. Miyoko's is one of our favorites. Um, and how do you find these products? How do you find these alternatives? Um, and that was the, the gap that we wanted to fill because it's just not there. I just don't think our medical professionals have the time. They don't have the resources. It's just not there. It's not what they're there for in that moment. And you know, I don't know. I see a lot of people talk about that and being angry and, and all of those things, but I think we have to shift our expectation and we have to kind of, we have to have ownership over that, right? Like we have to have ownership over our own health. And that means that we have to dive deeper and we have to take the time to educate ourselves. And we have to take the time to find the resources and um, look outside of that medical space, because there's a lot of people with their own experiences, like, you know, you guys and, and bringing awareness and knowledge and education. And, um, there are a lot of other resources outside of just being with that specialist. So Debbie, for you, when you got diagnosed, thankfully you had Candace to help you shortcut some of those knowledge gaps, but I'm assuming you did some research and learning on your own that was able to contribute to this, this fabric of knowledge that you were learning together with Candace to help yourselves live the best lives possible. So talk about what you learned and what helped you in your journey after you got your diagnosis. Sure, sure. Well, I didn't think I was as allergic um, as Candace was. I, I didn't think I was reacting at all. Again, back to the anytime, not every time, but um the doctor at UVA that I saw has told me, you know, some people are allergic to dairy. Some people aren't. And so 
I didn't seem to be having an issue with theory, even though my, my brain fog was even starting to clear by the time I actually got into UVA. Um, and so it took me an, a few more months and my family was on vacation and um, we were on a cruise ship in the middle of the Caribbean and I had a full, I, I went in, into an anaphylactic reaction. And I had not had any exposure. Like I had not had that I knew, I obviously had some kind of exposure. I had not had any that I um, had been aware of. Um, and we can talk about my experience with the medical professionals there at some point. But the takeaway from that was that as soon as I got my Wi-Fi back, as soon as I got onto my LTE network, you know, in the car on the way home, I spent that drive from Florida researching all the things that could have triggered this that weren't obvious. And um, that was actually, I went, I wrote the first blog post and I sent it to Candace and cause she'd been talking about wanting to share this information so that we can help other people. And I was like, we've got to do this now because this happened and it, it shouldn't have happened if, if I was avoiding everything. I, there is so much that's hidden out there. So that's when I started, that's what I know when I cut out um, dairy too. And I've tried to reintroduce dairy a couple times with, with, with no luck, but, um, then we went down the road of the beauty and health products. And, and as Candace had mentioned, the, the medical supplements and, and gel pills and stuff we were learning about just all these places where it's hidden that no one is talking about. So that's kind of where my research went, um, after that reaction. So Candace, give us an idea of what everyday's life, everyday life is like for you now. So you go out, I'm sure you have some sort of like emergency prep bag, right? So, so what, what's in that emergency kit that you bring with you and how are you able to overcome some of these obstacles and now, and get back into your life and live a life of joy again? Sure. So, um, you know, I feel like initially my toolkit was a little smaller than it is right now. Um, (laughs) I, I, um, got to like a more stable place, um, a while ago. And then, you know, even as careful as I've been, we actually traveled to Colorado this summer and I had, um, I had an anaphylactic reaction twice. Um, so I have become quite the pro at using my EpiPen now. So my, um, toolkit uh, contains my EpiPens. I always have two on me. Um, I think that that's important for people to know, um, take both of your EpiPens, um, just in case one of them is not enough. Um, but I have children's liquid, um, generic brand Zyrtec. Um, I have Unisom sleep melts. So I think something that needs to be addressed, um, Benadryl actually contains mammal. So um, Dr. Scott Commons recommends using Unisom sleep melts. It has the main active ingredient as Benadryl, but it is mammal free. Um, so the sleep melts are in my toolkit. Um, I also have prescription for, um, Pepsid. Um, so the sleep melts are an H1 blocker. Pepsid is an H2 blocker. Um, and those are different antihistamines. So one's for, you know, block the blocking, you have histamines that, that come about in your stomach. So, um, that's why Pepsid is there. And then, um, I also have a prescription for prednisone. So you know, I encourage people to have your over-the-counter stuff, but please talk to your medical professional if you are having really severe symptoms and you may need to have prednisone or a prescription for Pepsid alongside your um, over-the-counter medications as well. 
there really is so much more than just an EpiPen. You need a whole kit of, of things with you in case you have a reaction. Talk to us more about H1 and H2 blockers. So you, you mentioned H1 and H2, are, I guess, are, are histamines that get generated from the alpha-gal allergy. Yes. So um, anytime you're having a, an allergic reaction, your histamines are being released. And so you have different mechanisms in your body um, that release the H1 um, histamines or the H2 histamines. So, um, I can't remember, I think the H1 histamines come about more respiratory, um, wise, um, and the H2 are located in your stomach. That's why you need Pepsid, um, or some form of antihistamine that is directly, you know, contacting those within your stomach. So Candace, give us an example of a time you had a reaction, maybe a more severe reaction. I think you mentioned you were on vacation and you had two, and you had to utilize your toolkit and what that experience was like. So what triggered the reaction and then what sequence you took, meaning what, what item in your toolkit did you use first and how did you know when you needed to use the others in addition to the ones you were previously using and how you navigate your reactions? Sure. So um, when we were in Colorado, um, we were there at the heat of the, at the height of the heat wave. And, um, I've learned now, so I do have a mast cell issue with all of this. So it puts me in a little more of, um, I'm easily triggered, I think. Um, but I didn't realize kind of that cascade effect of the heat, the altitude. Um, I now know. So, um, we had gone to a restaurant, which can be extremely difficult. That's one of the things we hear from people the most is navigating, clearly eating out, um, and cross-contamination, all of those things. I am extremely diligent with where I eat, um, and, and making calls beforehand, speaking to the manager, chef, all of that. And we had eaten at this restaurant. Um, I'm not exactly sure if I got cross-contamination there, or if this was more of the heat factor played into all of this, but, um, I started to get a bad headache. Um, that was kind of the first thing that I noticed. And, um, I always take daily, I take 20 milligrams of that liquid Zyrtec. So that was already in my system, but my first line of defense, when I start to feel like a reaction's coming on, be it a headache, be it the dizziness, disconnectedness, I have very weird. It's hard for me to totally explain, but I'll feel this disconnected, um, ness with, within myself. And it makes me feel that brain fog and just kind of that woozy headedness. Um, so I started to feel that way. Um, I also keep a blood pressure cuff with me. That was something I failed to mention before, but, um, my blood pressure will tank. So that is, that is a, you know, that is a, a true sign of anaphylaxis when you're dealing with blood pressure fluctuation. And I now know that, um, if another system is in play, so if I have low blood pressure and I'm having GI issues or I have rapid heart rate, or, um, I feel lightheaded, that is means for me to use my EpiPen. So I've become very comfortable with knowing those metrics for myself. And I, I encourage every person to, know what your metrics are and, um, do not be afraid to use your EpiPen on yourself. It does not hurt. You do not have to do this like full stab on with your hand. I will, I will have, I have to say the first time that my EpiPen was used by my sweet husband, who is not an alarmist at all, but he was panicking and he reared his arm up 
and did the whole like stab into my thigh. I had a bruise, like contusion for a month. <laughs> um, that is not how you use your EpiPen. <laughs> um, it is very calm. I've showed my children how to use it on me. Um, you know, it's you, you, I don't know. I have the generic brand of EpiPen. Again, another thing, if you do not have good insurance, um, always ask for the generic. It is, it is much, much cheaper. Um, I, I paid $10 for my two EpiPens. I paid 400 for EpiPen brand. Um, it is unbelievable, but, um, the generics are super easy to use and they're, you know, um, they have this, they're spring loaded. You just put them against your leg and push and hold for 10 seconds and just always make sure you have someone with you so that they can get you to the to the hospital after that. But, um, that is kind of, I mean, that, that is what happened in Colorado. And, um, now I take my, my travel bag of, of medications with me everywhere. I even take them to the bathroom with me in, in my house. I mean, I'm because I don't know, like if it's, if it is more of the mass cell piece, I want to be prepared and I want to make sure everything's like with me just in case things go awry. So in Colorado, you used the EpiPen, but you didn't use um, the sleep melts or, or the prednisone. Oh, I did. Sorry. So I started with that. So I started with the sleep melts. The sleep melt is the first thing that I use. I'll take two of those. And then I took Pepsid. Um, I did not have the prednisone at that time. So now that's been added to my, to my bag since that episode. Um, but I do, I start with the, the antihistamines first. Um, I don't, I give myself like 15 minutes or so to see, but I'm always monitoring my blood pressure. That is my, that is my number one concern because if that's tanking, then I have to use my EpiPen. So you, you took the sleep melts and the Pepsid waited 15 minutes. You weren't getting better. And then you use the EpiPen. It sounds like. Correct. Yes. Yep. So Debbie, same question for you. What's in your alpha gal toolkit and give us an example of a time you've had to use it and what the process was like. Sure, sure. Well, um, most of the things Candace said, um, sleep melts usually work for me if I feel like I'm starting to have a reaction. So I usually have to, I usually get to stop there. I, as I mentioned before, I haven't had to use my own EpiPens on myself. Um, there are maybe a couple of times I, I maybe should have, but I sleep melts seem to get me um, through most of it. Now, the one thing I would add um, to what Candace said to include in your your toolkit is some form of notification um, of alpha-gal syndrome. So whether it's a card or, you know, a piece of paper or a laminated thing or a medical alert bracelet, something that lets people know in that toolkit or on your person, what might be triggering your reaction because, you know, I'm here at home and this is great if something were to happen to me right now, well, first you all would probably make, <laughs> make a phone call, but, um, but my family is here and I've done the same thing. I've taught everybody how to use the EpiPen on me. I, my, in my anaphylactic reaction, my throat was swelling. And so, um, um, so I, I fear that a little bit. Um, so my kids know how to use it. If I start to feel funny, cause I get a similar disjointed feeling when I've had exposure as Candace mentioned, it's hard to put into words, but I, I just feel really off and I start to feel really foggy and then my stomach goes and then I know I'm 
I've had some sort of exposure. It seems to be, you know, pretty much the same each time. My worst reaction was that time on the cruise ship. And um, this was only a few months after my diagnosis. It was maybe six months after my diagnosis. And um, I didn't know all this at the time. I had my EpiPens, so I had them with me. And um, those same symptoms started. Um, I, I felt off and then my stomach went and I took regular Benadryl at that time because I didn't know any better. I didn't, I didn't know the, the difference with the sleep melts. Um, and so I still felt off and it was the middle of the night. And if you've ever been on a cruise ship in the middle of the night, it's like silent. There's no, like, it's very hard to find people. So I went out, I was like, I'm going to go get some water. I'm going to walk around the top, get some fresh air. So I did that to that point. I'd never had anything really bad. So my husband stayed with the kids in the cabin and I was walking around and, um, sat down and I started feeling real lightheaded. And then a staff member came over and was like, are you okay? I was like, I think I'm having an allergic reaction. He was like, let me call the medical staff. And I was like, well, I took Benadryl. I, I think I just need fresh air. And so he sat with me for a little bit and then he's like, we're taking you down to the medical office. And I was like, no, that's where people catch norovirus. Like you can't take me down there. That's where I'm going to get sick. But they insisted. And, um, and they woke up the doctor and the nurse who were down there who uh, didn't believe me that I had uh, uh, alpha gal. They had never heard of it. They didn't think I was having a reaction until they took my metrics and they looked at my throat and they, um, and that's who gave me the EpiPen. <laughs> so they started me on a, a Benadryl drip and um, gave me the EpiPen and monitored me for a while. And, um, and I was okay. I don't know that I'll ever go on a cruise ship again because I really felt like I was on like a floating hotel of death in the middle of the ocean. But um, but that was that was my worst reaction. And so now now I take my toolkit, maybe not to the bathroom like Candace does, but <laughs> um, I take my toolkit with me everywhere I go. I have a medical alert bracelet. Um, but the most important tool that I think I have is to know what I'm going to do in the case of an emergency, like not, not if I have a reaction, but when I have a reaction, I want to know the steps that I'm going to take to make sure that I'm not going to die, you know, and that gives me so much peace of mind, honestly, mm -hmm. that when I, when I start to suspect I have, a, uh, when I'm having a reaction, I can go, okay, well, if I am having a reaction, I'm going to start with my sleep melt. I know where the nearest ER is. Um, I'm going to check my metrics. I'm, and I'm going to alert my family or whoever is around me that I'm not okay. Because um, in, case I, in case I go down, like I want somebody to know that I'm not feeling good because I think I might've had exposure to an allergen that could send me into an anaphylactic reaction. Yeah, and I think, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, Matt, like, I think that is a huge piece of this is setting up your support system. You have to find your support system and you also have to be okay with speaking up. So like, you've got to surround yourself with people, you know, like Debbie and I were talking about this the other day, you know, it's hard when you're diagnosed with this allergy because everything is altered. Every single thing is altered. We have people that, you know, like myself that are fume reactive. So you have to think about like, oh gosh, can, what restaurant could I go to, to sit at with my friends and family, you know, that I, if I start to feel just that disjointed feeling, you need to feel comfortable with the people you're around to say, Hey, 
even if it's mid-sentence. This happened to me not long ago. And I had to do this around a group of girlfriends and say, hey, I need to move outside. Like you've not, you've got to be comfortable and confident in what you're feeling to be able to relay that to those people. So I highly recommend starting with the people that are your support people in trying these new things. Can I add one more thing there? Absolutely. Because they are that, that support piece is so key. You know, I was traveling with some friends a few, few months ago, um, and we were going to restaurants and they got to see me having this experience with restaurants, right? Like, okay, so we're sitting outside, but what do you cook your French fries in? And do you cook any mammal products in that oil? And, you know, going down this list of all the things that we regularly check. And there was one restaurant where we were out, we were at where the waiter came over. He's like, I don't know, probably canola oil. And my friend looked at him and goes, okay, you can say that, but if you bring her food that was cooked in something with mammal, she might have a reaction right here in your restaurant. And that could be really bad. So yeah, what's yeah. Your fr- what are your French fries cooked in? So having that support system can be, um, can actually, I mean, it works as, as a tool. Like my friends were ready to say, ah, you need to find out exactly what's in your oil baths, you know? So yeah, it's really backup. So when you go to an incompetent doctor on a cruise ship who says alpha gal is not real i don't believe you you're gonna have a support system say hey idiot this is real take care of her right (laughs) yeah exactly that's exactly right yeah yeah and then (laughs) yeah and and it does and i think it boosts your confidence too in yourself and in trusting you know yourself and um and you're able to step into these new experiences, you know, from taking something that's really, really hard. And like, you're, you're having to constantly be in this reinvention phase, but you have your people with you, right. You have the backup with you that are saying, Hey, this is real. And, and then it just, it allows you to then take something that's been really hard. Even when you've had an anaphylactic reaction on vacation with your family, even though, you know, (laughs) you know what, you know, and it's hard as hell, but you can then pick up and say, I have this group with me that is encouraging me to have new experiences and turn this into joy. Um, and I think that it's critical. I think it's critical to have that. And I think Candace and I are blessed in the way that we do have family who mostly understands and we can surround ourselves. And I know that's not the case for everybody. So what yeah. do we do about that? How, how do we support the people that don't have a right. support system around them? And I think that's where the awareness piece comes into this. Like if, if we can spread the word on alpha gal syndrome so that it becomes something that medical professionals are looking for with these symptoms, or it becomes something that servers are aware of in restaurants then, yeah. you know, those people who don't necessarily have the access to a support system like we do might be in a little safer situation. And Rich is going to get there in a little bit as far as the awareness and all the work that you guys are doing to, to help make this more prominent and well-known in the community. But I have a few more questions before Rich does that. So yeah. Candace, you had mentioned that you were fume sensitive to, some, mm-hmm. you know, you can walk into a restaurant and, and react to fume. So what do you mean by that? If they're cooking mammal meat, the actual, yes. the fumes coming off that cooking can actually trigger you into a, an anaphylactic reaction. Absolutely. So you can have a reaction airborne um, because the particles, you know, you're, you're breathing them in. So they get into your lungs and um, yeah, it, that, that reaction for me is, is almost instant. Um, it happens within a couple of minutes. Um, so 
my household is completely mammal free. I cannot cook mammal in my house. My teenagers um, have gotten really good at grilling their own hamburgers and steaks on their own grill. Um, so, you know, I would also, you know, encourage people that are still reacting and they're still cooking it in their houses to, to think about that, um, that as well. So it, it does make it, it makes it very hard. It makes it hard to, you know, go out and that, that piece of it. But thankfully, I think one of the blessings of COVID is a lot of things were happening outside. So a lot, you know, there's a lot more dining outdoors now. And, um, so I always choose to sit outside. Um, so there's ways to kind of go around it, but it is, it is a real, a real issue. Debbie, one of the things you've told us offline is that massage therapy, acupuncture, and even chiropractors help you treat the symptoms of alpha-gal. I'm curious, how do those techniques help you with your alpha-gal allergic reaction symptoms? Sure. Well, I think um, the symptom that I, that they addressed most was the joint pain. And so they would just, you know, especially acupuncture, I felt like it would just give me a little bit of a, a release from it, a little bit of relief from it um, temporarily. And so I always knew it wasn't going to last, but um, I knew when I would reach the very worst points that if I went to a massage therapist or an acupuncturist or a chiropractor, um, it seemed to help me feel a little bit better for a little bit of time. And I think part of the reason of that and the reason for that, and this is just my own observation, but I have so much inflammation that I think may be related to alpha-gal syndrome, but I'm not entirely sure um, that I think some of those things actually really have helped with the inflammation issues. And so that helps relieve some of my pain, but it's always temporary. And Candy, similar question for you. You mentioned to mm -hmm. us earlier that things like you, you've tried things like Chinese herbs and supplements and an infrared sauna. How do those things help you with your symptoms? So I would, I would also agree with Debbie. Like, I think a lot of my um, underlying issues come from an inflammation, which that also increases your mast cell production. Um, so that those are the things that I've been working to address to then just calm down my histamine response. So I'm already, you know, alongside removing all of the mammal products from everything I'm putting in and on my body. I feel like this is a way that I can help kind of eliminate the inflammation, um, the inflammation piece to hopefully keep my histamine levels a little bit more in check. So one of the things that we, we always talk about with Lyme patients when we interview them is the need for some sort of therapy because Lyme is traumatic, alpha-gal is traumatic. And a lot of people sometimes get defensive that I don't need therapy. This is, cause especially in the Lyme community, we, they get accused of saying it's all in their head, just like you guys were, right? This isn't real, this is psychological, you're fine. But we have found that therapy is really important in the Lyme community because you need to be able to process and get through what has happened to you to be able to heal. Do you believe the same is true for alpha-gal that seeing a, a therapist and getting some sort of psychological help is really beneficial to help overcome the fear and the anxiety that comes along with alpha gal. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I still, I still see a therapist regularly because not only does it help deal with the fear and the anxiety and all those feelings that we built up of feeling guilty and burdensome, but, um, but I, I, it's also really nice to have somebody who, uh, I pay to hear me talk about it when I, so that, you know, and, and not tell me that I'm crazy and not tell me that I'm imagining it. And, and also not tell me that, 
hey, this is really important, but can we start dinner? You know, so it's somebody who is exclusively there to help my mind sort this out. I, I talk about it all the time to everybody that I can about how important therapy is to my kids. Wow. I don't want there to be any stigma attached to it because all it can do is help. And if I think every single person in the whole world <laughs> can benefit from therapy, Agreed. but especially those yes. with alpha gal and Lyme, because it is, I mean, most of us have a long journey, right? And it has worn on us and our relationships and our health. And I think therapy can do nothing but help. And if yeah, you're and not I, the right therapist and it's not helping, find another one. Now, that's our right to do that because they're, it, they're, they vary so much from person to person. And, and I believe so strongly yeah. that someone out there can help. Yeah. And I totally agree. And I think that there's amazing, like various forms of therapy. And I think for a lot of us that are dealing with food allergies or anaphylactic reactions, we have a lot of PTSD. I'm, I know I do. I know that my severe reaction was so terrifying that it, I really struggled with being alone for a long time. I still do. And so I see, um, I see a therapist and have EMDR therapy done, um, for that, you know, to try to retrain that, that piece of my brain. Um, and it's been amazing. It's been such a healing experience for me. So I, 100%. That's one of the things Debbie and I really want to touch on a lot with our blog is the mental health component. We're actually going to be featuring a psychiatrist that deals specifically with food allergies. Um, so we are huge proponents of mental health. Um, and I, I, I agree with Debbie. I think everyone in the world needs therapy and, um, <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it should be part. I think the, the mental health piece, the therapy piece, needs to be in our toolkit. I think it's a huge piece that needs to be in everyone's toolkit. Um, so I, I highly recommend anyone seeking out, um, you know, the right therapist for you to, to speak about any of your trauma or, um, you know, what you've dealt with with your sickness. It is, it is a traumatic event for sure. Another common crossover. Again, this is like the theme of the podcast where, where, <laughs> people in the Lyme community get PTSD often as well. And we've heard yeah. about people in the Lyme community using e techniques like EMDR to really yeah. get themselves, once they're in a place where you guys are, to be able to help themselves process that trauma and get back to their, their happy, enjoyable lives. And we actually interviewed um, a, a tick-borne illness neural, neuropsychologist who's a, a leading expert in the community who talked to us about PTSD from tick-borne illnesses and how it's real and how you have to process that trauma to really be able to get through the journey and heal properly. So- yeah. The other thing I, I found that interesting, another crossover is you, you, you both talked about the, what you call the thing sort of out of body experience, right? And we've heard other people in the Lyme community tell us that after they eat something or they have some sort of, you know, a food allergy, they develop what, what we, what we in the Lyme community call depersonalization, which is sort of that out of body experience. You don't feel like yourself. You feel like you're like, like looking down at yourself almost or looking at yourself yeah. externally. So I also, I also wonder many of those people possibly could have alpha gal and are having some sort of food allergy to experience that type of reaction, which is what exactly you both described mm -hmm. as a, as a precursor to a alpha gal reaction. It sounds like, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I mean, I think, like I said, it's a simple blood test. Um, go to alphagalinformation.org. You can see the exact diag diagnostic code that you need and have it done, have it rule it out you know, because it could be, you could be just 
perpetuating through the things that are trying to help you, you know, with your medications or supplements or food, you know, like you may be eating something you think is helping and it's harming. So just rule it out. Why not? You know, it's like when in doubt, like rule it out, like go just get the test done. Well, well I am certainly convinced that many, many, many in the Lyme community have Lyme and alpha gals. I'm hoping a lot of people listening to this will get tested and hopefully yeah. be able to help themselves get further along in their healing journey. You know, th- this is a hard question. If you don't know the answer, it's totally fine. But I'm just, I'm curious, what about the alpha-gal reaction causes brain fog, which is another common symptom of Lyme disease, and also the, the joint pain and, and the shoulder pain that you, that you were describing, Debbie? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I don't either. I don't either. Um, I'm not really sure what it is exactly. I mean, I, and I don't even know totally like the medical reason why we have the symptoms that we do. Yeah. You, Debbie, I mean, I, I, I don't, don't know. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think there's still so much to be learned about alpha gal. I think we've barely yeah. scratched the surface and I think we're, we're so fortunate for people like both of you and, and the people in the community that are really leading this research to learn more. And, and my final observation again, is we, you guys talked about the really, before you got diagnosed, you really couldn't eat much without having a reaction. And we've heard from a lot of people in the Lyme community that they developed anorexia, right? And, and they said, everything I ate made me feel horrible. So I just stopped eating. I, and, you know, so I wonder if there's an overlap there as well, where people who are just having all of these, these horrible food reactions and are being diagnosed with anorexia, which is now commonly being attributed to Lyme disease, if there's, an, a, if there's another overlap with alpha-gal as well, do you, do you think that's a possibility? Wow, I'd never even thought of that, but that, that's a I mean, that's a scary thought, but then it also, my head immediately goes to like, that's why Candace and I need to do what we're doing and other people need to do what we're doing, what you all are doing so that you, people know that there are options. You don't have to just stop eating. Even when we're related, you know, our uh, food is like the major issue for most people with AlphaGal. Um, there are other options and, 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 and we're there to help you figure them out and, um, and we're living like our best life <laughs> in Alabama, you know? So yeah, um, yeah. So I and think that's where the awareness piece comes back to it too. Yeah. I'm sorry. I mean, I was just thinking like, I know initially when I was so severe and I was reacting to so many other foods, you know, like I do think that there's, everyone has a different threshold, right? So we have these histamine buckets and Unfortunately, mine, I think is the size of a shot glass. Like it's, <laughs> it's tiny. I don't think mine's a bucket. Mine's so small, but I think that that's, you know, if you get stuck in that, I think that's where it can lead to, like you were saying, I didn't realize the anorexia, you know, correlation either, but I can see how it happens. Mm-hmm. And I can see how, if you, if you get stuck in that, in that piece of like, I don't know if I, I might have gotten stuck there had I not eliminated beef, pork and dairy and all the byproducts and sugar. And, you know, there are so many other pieces of this that contain that contain alpha gal, even carrageenan, which is in vegan foods. So like some people are going vegan and they're still having carrageenan or carrageenan. I never say it right. But um, that actually contains the alpha gal epitope. So it can make people even more sick. So I think if you're not eliminating the right things, you're going to still react to things that you may not react to if you eliminate the right things to start with. Um, 
and getting kind of that, your histamines under control. Like I did do a low histamine diet to start with, but I only did it for like a month. And I knew like, I wasn't going to stay there. I wasn't going to stay eliminating strawberries, spinach, like all of these healthy things forever. So I think, again, it's like, you've got, if you can know what you're dealing with and we knew what we were dealing with, with alpha gal. And if you're in the Lyme community and you're still reacting and you don't know what you're dealing with, then it can lead to this negative spiral instead of this upward trend of health. Right. So get the test done. I I can, I cannot encourage people more to just get that test done. So, you know what you're dealing with and maybe it will, you'll avoid that downward spiral into an anorexic state. Cause gosh, that's just terrible. That is exciting here. So before I hand this back over to Rich, Candice, Debbie, you are in the forefront of the AlphaGal community. Talk to us about what's coming down the road. Are there researchers looking into a way to remove the AlphaGal allergy so this can be gone altogether? Are there, are there some promising research studies happening? What's, what's the future hold for the AlphaGal community? Yeah, I know that Dr. Scott Commons, he is the lead AlphaGal researcher at um, the University of Chapel Hill in North Carolina. Um, I am very fortunate that he is now my immunologist. Um, I love UVA, but I really love the fact that Dr. Commons is, he is the guy on the forefront um, taking over for Dr. Platts Mills. So Dr. Platts Mills kind of laid the the groundwork for all of that, but he, I know um, is in the process. I think his biggest research article is getting ready to be published if it has not been published already. Um, I know that that's coming out um, in the next couple of months. so I, I feel very hopeful that with his work and with this publication coming out, it will lend for the potential for more funding to start to be set up because that's the big thing with AlphaGal right now is I'm sure as you guys know, with like the Lyme community, it's all about numbers and they want to see the research and um, before there's really legislative, you know, push toward funding and all of that stuff. So I do know that that is is in the works and we're hope, we're hoping with our work that we're doing and the community that we're hoping to build and create, we want to be a part of that and we want to help um, with funding. So we have some really exciting things in the works. Um, we're not ready to, to release that just yet, but our big hope is that we can, that we can contribute to that on more of a regular basis because we want AlphaGal to, you know, have the, the, we want the awareness to be there um, so that we can have more help in this arena. So gals, um, alpha gals, we, uh, <laughs> we're not going to ask you to make the big reveal today because you've already teased us and made us <laughs> anxious to uh, try to push you, but I'm going to, I'm going to leave that out there because I, I'd like to sort of re-examine um, at least what I've seen here as what Matt is calling the crossover between the successes that the two of you have had and the successes that we've seen from people who have had Lyme disease proper um, overcome their challenges. We, we did a podcast episode that we entitled Radical Responsibility. And what we saw in that young woman was someone who was unbelievably resourceful. And because she was unbelievably resourceful, she ultimately got to a place where she was again, living her best life. And I see the same thing with you two as well, where there were hurdle after hurdle after hurdle put before you, and you were able to overcome those hurdles because of your resourcefulness. 
resourcefulness. So I want you to just stay with me on this and, and each of you react to it. The first thing I, I saw was that the two of you are both very sick, but you kept going from doctor to doctor to doctor looking for help and looking for solutions, right? And even before the two of you found the solution, you found community because you saw the same challenges in one another and you came together to support one another and created what I'm now going to take credit for as the Alpha Sisterhood, where you were working together and supporting one another. Then you went through your diagnostic process, first Candice, and then Debbie, where the two of you are now supporting each other through going through the diagnostic process. But then, then you even found expert doctors who had only limited frameworks that they could give you. And you took responsibility for your health first physically by coming up with solutions that your doctors couldn't give to you. So you were doing your research and you were doing, doing the work you needed to do to continue to heal. And you didn't get mad at anyone for that because it was your responsibility. You then took responsibility of letting your social circle know what they needed to do to support you. And although you were both very kind and polite about saying we have wonderful husbands and wonderful people, but it really was you who were putting them in a position where they could be your best support system. And now you're taking the, the, the I think, the most beautiful step, which is you're now taking responsibility for other people for other people's illness. And you're now putting together a beautiful community which is going to include, of course, something you're not going to share with us, which is something that's going to be really cool. So please react to my perspective on how your radical responsibility, first for yourselves and now for the rest of the community, has really been the theme of your work together. Yeah, it's, I mean, I'm kind of blown away that, that I mean, it is, and that's what we're, that's what we're trying to do. And I love that you saw that. I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, it's, I don't, I don't know. I'm kind of speechless. <laughs> I know. I, thank you so much for putting that so beautifully. Um, one thing I, I, my, my first reaction is a quote that Candace shared with me just yesterday. I think that was Sojourner Truth. And she said that joy is an act of resistance. And um, so we want to be that resistance. We want to find a way through this to continue to live our best lives. And I say that we're in the thick of this still. Candace is still having really severe reactions. I occasionally get cross-contamination, which will cause, you know, symptoms for days. We're in the thick of this. We're not pretending like, yeah, like we are out of the weeds, but we want to, we want to choose joy and we want to figure out how to get there for ourselves. And we want to help other people get there. Yeah. So Thank you for phrasing yes. that. That was really so, but, beautiful. <laughs> but, but Debbie and again, it's 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 your beautiful story, and it's the and it's the ability to live a beautiful life while you're in the throes of this because you are taking radical responsibility, right? And it's that radical yeah. responsibility that's allowing you to live a beautiful life now, allowing your families to live beautiful lives despite all the challenges that you've had, and now, of course helping other people to live the best life they can live, even though they're in the throes of it. And I think that's a really important, another beautiful part of this lesson that you've taught all of us through your stories, which is you don't have to be cured. You don't have to be in remission, however you want to define this, to live a beautiful life. You can live a beautiful life while you're going through the process and you can live a beautiful life after the process. Yes. So, yes. Give, so, so Candace, give me your reaction to that piece of your beautiful story. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so, it's so true. And it's, um, you know, Debbie and I were talking about this the other day of, um, you know, 
where you are kind of in this constant state of reinvention. And, but I think you have to have these, these first foundational things put into place of knowing your body, of knowing your plan, of knowing your support team. It's this building upon this foundation so that when you do react and it sucks and it's hard and you're on vacation with your family and you're having a great time and wham, it happens, you can pick back up after and say, okay, that was, that was a piece of this, but it's not what I am always, right? Like you authentically, I think there was this beautiful Brene Brown quote that I do not remember off the top of my head, but I'm reading the gifts of imperfection that she wrote. And it talks about stepping into your authentic self and, and owning it right. And owning who you are right now. And I think accepting where you are in this space that like Debbie said, it's not if it happens, but when that grounds you, or it does me, I'm speaking for myself, like it grounds me or it has in a way over these past three years to pick up after that and say, I know that my body is going through something hard right now, but the next step, I will be able to have a positive experience. I I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard to totally put it into words, but I think you have to do the self-work and like you were saying, make that, you know, radical change. And it's, it goes on so many levels. And, um, I'm just, I feel grateful that I'm able to step into that and we want to help other people step into that space. Another one of the things that I think is really beautiful about your story is, you know, in our culture, unfortunately, responsibility has become a dirty word. And, you know, it really just means we know certainly scripturally respond with ability, right? And that's what the two of you have done. You've responded with ability. You've developed the tool set and you've developed, you've developed the tools to respond with ability so that you could be safe and you could live your best lives and your families could live their best lives. So give me your reaction to that, Debbie. Well, I think um, you're right. Responsibility does take on a negative connotation, but respond with ability. That's what we, we need to do. And that's what we're trying to do, but that's what everyone out there that we're trying to reach needs to do. But I think when you say responsibility, take responsibility, that doesn't mean pretend it's not happening. And it doesn't mean glaze over this terrible thing that we're going through. It means accept, accept that this, find a point of acceptance, but you can't get there without going through those stages of grief. When you're faced with something like this or something like Lyme, you have to go through those stages to reach acceptance. You've got to figure out how you're going to survive before you're going to figure out how you're going to find joy again. And so, um, so I, I guess that's how I would comment on it, that we do all need to find, uh, take responsibility for this, but it's a process. It, it, it's mm-hmm. a process. So, so Candace, I want to ask you about this because you, you, 
really taught us, I think, a beautiful lesson about what we can expect from doctors. But I think one of the reasons why responsibility, at least in the medical community, has sort of taken on this negative connotation is because when doctors have failed us, they've said they largely point to us and either gaslight us by saying we don't have anything wrong with us, or point to us and say, well, it was really your failure to uphold your responsibility, and that's why we're not able to help you. But you didn't allow even the best doctors in this uh, arena to put you in a position where you got angry and you did something other than take responsibility for taking the steps to build on, on the frameworks the best doctors were able to give to you. So talk to us about your perspective on responsibility and how it's not a dirty word. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a dirty word. I think that, you know, we, we are our best advocate. We know our bodies best. And, you know, it's so interesting because I don't know, it hit me really hard when we were in Colorado and I had to go to two different ERs, but those two ER doctors, both of them, they both told me, you know, your body best. We don't know what you're going, like, we don't know what you're going through. So what do you need from us? I was floored when they asked me those questions, but it re it, it reiterated what you, what you're saying. It's like, I, but I knew I knew to take ownership over what I was going through. And, um, you know, medical doctors are human. We're all human beings and they don't have, (laughs) there's not one person that has the right answer. So I think like, I think that it's, I feel like it's almost arrogant of us to expect for one human being to take over our health. That is on us. It's on us. I don't know. Like I, and again, I think it's maybe through years of my own work with personal development and really that introspection and all of that. I think that it's led me to this place of, of being able to have that responsibility and take that ownership. And it's a very positive thing for me. It's not a negative. <laughs> and it's what allowed both of you to get through this challenge, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it certainly is the crossover with the people that we've seen have success with, uh, with Lyme disease generally. So yeah. you, the two of you have been really generous with your time and Matt and I would talk to you for another five hours if, uh, <laughs> if you, your families would allow us to, but we're not oh going to do gosh. that to you or your families. We're going to bring you to the last question we ask everybody on Tick Bootcamp and uh, on, the, on the Tick Bootcamp podcast. And Debbie, I'm going to start with you. If God forbid your wonderful husband who's been so supportive of you came walking into the, into the room you're sitting in right now after this podcast and he had a tick biting him on his arm, what would you recommend that he do so he would not have to go on a terrible Lyme disease journey? Let's see. Okay. He walks in. The first thing we would do is remove the tick. So we would make sure that we got all the pieces of it out. We would save the tick um, and um, try to identify it first, uh, clean the area. um, And um, he uh, I wouldn't even scold him because it's so easy to pick up ticks right? <laughs> and you mow the lawn and you get them, you feed the sheep and you get them, you know, but, um, what else would we do? For those of you who have sheep. Yes. For those of us <laughs> right here, who have sheep. um, and, um, and we would watch for a reaction, not just a bullseye. We would not just watch for a bullseye. We would watch for any of the many symptoms from any of the many tick born diseases. 
And I don't know. Did I? It felt like a quiz. Did I leave anything? <laughs> no, you were very good. But now we're gonna we're gonna give Candace an opportunity. Now, I'm gonna ask Candace a question a little bit differently because Dr. Mathis almost blasted through her leg with that EpiPen in that really cool <laughs> image that she shared with us. So, um, so Candace, in the event that uh, you know your wonderful husband, despite his uh, his failures with the EpiPen, came into the room right after you finished this podcast, and he had to take biting him on his arm, what would you recommend? That that he do so that he wouldn't have to go on a Lyme disease journey. Yeah, I think it'd be similar to Debbie. I think I would scream expletives first though. Like <laughs> I would be really freaked out. Um, but then I would also, you know, remove the tick properly um, and send it off to be tested. I think that's something that I've learned through this. I, I never knew that that was an option. Um, so that could help maybe rule out some things um, by having the tick actually tested. Um, I probably would also, you know, encourage him to just prophylactically treat himself with, with antibiotics, um, just to be on the safe side to start with. And then clearly like make sure, like look for the symptoms. If he starts to develop any alpha gal, um, any alpha gal symptoms, but I may also encourage him to just have the blood work done after about six weeks to just double check everything. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guests, Debbie Nichols and Candace Mathis. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Debbie Nichols and Candace Mathis, please visit their Instagram page at 2AlphaGals or their website, 2AlphaGals.wordpress.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank your community for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.